בשם השם נעשה ונצליח. שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, the series of פרקי אבות, מוסר פרקי אבות, continues, I think this is number 16. Anyone that wants to see a shiurim, please go to TorahAnytime.com Amazing website, full of uh, great rabbis, great shiurim uh, The guys that are uh, running the shiurim over there, are running the website and the organization as a whole uh, The Koyako brothers, Meir, Yosef, all these people, tzaddikim, Amash tzaddikim People are just doing mesirut nefesh for Am Yisrael on a daily basis And it's not like uh, these people are getting rich off of this it's, the people are doing it for Mesirut Nefesh, for Am Yisrael, for Hashem Barach. So please go visit uh, TorahAnytime.com. Uh, also, if you're able to, donate to them. They're an amazing organization that help a lot of people do tshuva. Baruch Hashem, a lot of new fans that we have have come through them, people that have watched the personal story shiur and many other shiurim that we have on their site. We also have our website, BeZratHashem.org. And Baruch Hashem, many other places that are publicizing the shiurim, as you can see, we have the, the conference call, people from all over the world that don't want to watch it online, they want to hear it live, uh, you know, they call in, they call in, it's a uh, different level of Torah when you actually hear it live, than when you watch it on, uh, on the internet or anything else, number one, uh, you get to ask questions, and uh, number two, it's also, it's a different schut. It says in Masechet Brachot, as I've told you guys in the past, in the old days, when they went to Shurei Torah, it wasn't like today. You know, you get out of bed, you know, maybe put something on other than your pajamas, get in the car five minutes later, ten minutes later, you're in the Shur. Or, even if you don't want to leave the house, just press a button, Shur Torah from all over the world comes to your house. In those days, in order for them to watch a Shur Torah, sometimes they'd have to travel two, three, four days just to get to a Shur Torah. So the Gemara says, most of the schar, most of the reward that someone gets for shiur Torah is schar alicha. It's going to the shiur. Not for being in the shiur, but for going to the shiur. So the Gemara asks, why? Why go to the shiur? Went to see Rabbi Akiva give a shiur. You think, I get some schar for, for watching Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara says, if the speaker is a high level speaker, so Rabbi Akiva, giant, most people are not going to understand most of what he says. And even the ones that understand what he says, most of them are not going to remember everything he says. So Hashem wants to give you a full reward. So what's, what did you do completely and you know for sure you're going to remember it? You walk three days. You walk three days each way, you're going to get a full schar for that. So, Baruch Hashem, it's easy to get Torah, but that's also a way for the Yetzirah to convince you not to come. Yetzirah tells you, listen, when are you going to go to the Shior? Wait till tomorrow. It's going to be on Torah anytime. It's going to be on some internet site. Press the button. You could stop. You can play. You can bring popcorn. You can watch the game in the middle. You can text and not feel like uncomfortable. Do what you want. Watch it online. But the Gemara is here to tell you that the schal, the reward for someone that comes to the Shior, Versus the reward of somebody that watches it online, you can't compare the two. Shamayim Valets. Shamayim Valets, can't compare the two. 
It's two different worlds. So anyone that is already learning Torah might as well travel the extra 15 minutes, the extra hour, the extra half hour, like these tzaddikim over here traveled all the way from New York. Baruch Hashem, come to Shiur Torah. So Baruch Hashem, listen, it's people like you that come to Shiur Torah that Hashem keeps this world running for. Because there's anyone that watches the news, anyone that watches the world around us, it's getting scarier and scarier to go outside. No much, it's scary. Either from seeing immodesty or seeing the asonot, all the disasters that are happening around the world, whether it's terrorism or uh, it's all types of things. It's getting scary to be outside. The good news is, is that the Mashiach is coming very, very soon. The bad news is, I'm not really sure if most people believe that. I'm not really sure if most people believe that because if they believed it, then it would look like well, we should be ready. If you actually believed the Mashiach could be coming next week, could be coming tomorrow, could be coming next month, even could be coming in two years from now. Two years from now, not now, two years, five years. What would you be doing right now? Getting ready. You're not going to be worried about getting an extension to your house for another half a million dollars. You're trying to figure out how I can invest this half a million dollars to maybe get myself a seat next to the tzaddikim and actually get saved. Everybody assumes that we're all going to be saved, we're all going to be okay, Mashiach is here, everything is great. No, my friend. The Goel, the Mashiach is coming. Who is he coming to save? says in your tefillah. To bring, to save the people that did tshuva. Used to be Pushim. Used to be Mechalei Shabbat. Used to waste seed. Used to not be nice to their wives or husbands. Used to be like, unfortunately, some of these people that, oh Hashem, were trying to help them. Have Shlom Bayit issues. But not Shlom Bayit issues, like, oh, she yells at me. Not Shlom Bayit, like, oh, he's not so nice to me. Oh, Shlom Bayit is like, I found him with another woman. But because I don't want to destroy the family, I want to see if I can make it work. Tzadikah. The Rasha, the Rasha that cheated, he's saying, I'm not sure if I want to work it out. Not sure if I want to work it out. If he doesn't work it out, just so you know, somebody like that, Rasha Merusha, that doesn't work it out, like in a situation like that, the Genom that he has waiting for him, ooh, wah. Ooh, wah. Because there's multiple sins. And he can't do chuba for them. Oh, this world, this world is, this world is going to be like Gan Eden for him. Next to the Gehenom he's going to get. So people need to wake up. People need to wake up. It's not small, it's not small problems. It's not like, people don't call me for small problems. People call me when it's 911. When I don't know what to do, I'm uh, about to commit suicide. I don't know what to do. I just lost all my money. I don't know what to do. The doctor told me I have six months to live. Shem Rachem. So the Kedusha that comes from the Torah that we learn together here, helps the world. Helps the world run. Helps give Hashem another reason to keep it rotating. As it says in the, to Jeremiah the prophet, If not for my covenant, day and night, the rules of the world will cease to exist. Meaning if someone in the world is not learning Torah at some point at all times, 24 hours a day, Yomam Valayla. Day and night, somebody has to be learning Torah. But if for a second, there's no one in the world learning Torah, 
the rules of the world will cease to exist. What does it mean, rules of the world cease to exist? All of a sudden, there's no gravity. We go up to the Shemaim. All of a sudden, there's no oxygen. All of a sudden, the bond that keeps H2O together separates them. Your water now becomes gas. All of a sudden, the miracle that keeps the earth rotating at over 1,700 miles per hour in the same exact spot without moving one degree right or one degree left, which is the only way we could exist, all of a sudden, it doesn't stay that way anymore. It moves one degree right, gets closer to the sun, the whole world burns instantly. One degree, not five, not ten, not hundred. One degree. One degree closer to the sun, world's over. One degree to the left, too cold. We freeze. Everything turns into Antarctica. So what keeps the world running? You. You come to learn Torah at 9, 10 o'clock at night for a few hours, knowing that we need this uh, lifeline. Baruch Hashem, this series has been helping me a lot. Learning Musar on a daily basis is cleans out the soul. So, every time I see what Hillel says, or Rabban Gamliel says, makes me look in the mirror and say, oh, we have a lot of work to do. So the good news is, the Mashiach hasn't come yet, so we have more time. The better news, Hashem has mercy, He's going to give us some time. But how much time? We don't know. So it's time to get ready. Stop wasting your time trying to build companies, houses, and all types of material things and start building your neshama. Because once the Mashiach comes, no more time. Maram Masichet Abu page 4, says that once the Mashiach comes, no more tshuva, no more conversions. That's it. The end. Whatever you are, you stay. You're rasha, you stay rasha. Tzaddik, you stay tzaddik. Now, stay rasha, stay rasha. It doesn't say, listen, you're rasha, you go in that section. No. It says the Mashiach comes, and what is he going to do? What do you think he's going to talk to you if you're rasha? Comfort with you. Hey, how you doing? Why don't you do tshuva? Come on, let's learn some pekavot together. Let's call Rabbi Yaron, maybe he can go over with us, maybe teach us a chidush. What do you think he's going to talk to you like that? Mashiach is going to say words after smelling the sins, and people will disintegrate into nothing. Disintegrate into nothing. Sand. Time to get ready, my friends. Time to get ready. So let's see what he learned can teach us after the extraordinary lesson that we learned last week from Aban Gamliel where the last lesson he told us that one of the ways that we could actually do tshuva is to to completely nullify our own will you have desires you want to spend $25,000 on a brand new car? You want a fancy car? You want everybody to say, hey, he's got a nice car. You want to spend half a million dollars on a brand new house? Because the $300,000 house is not good enough. You want to do a half a million dollar extension? So the neighbors can say, oh, chazaku baruch. Want an extension? 
You want to get a $25,000 wedding gown? For the one day you're going to wear it and never wear it again. Everybody's going to complain about it anyway. Or maybe you want to get a $40,000 watch. So everybody can say, ah, Sadiq, what a watch he's got. Frank Mueller. So you're allowed to enjoy this world. You're allowed to enjoy this world. But Rabban Gamliel told you, don't forget. Only start enjoying this world. Only start. After you fulfilled your obligation to Hashem Barach. Once you fulfilled your obligation to Hashem Barach, enjoy. He gave you money, enjoy. You, all the people in your neighborhood are eating, enjoy steak as much as you want. Someone doesn't have food, but you're eating a three-course meal? You have a problem. You want to do a half a million dollar extension to your house? But you have 20 million Jews don't know what Shabbat is. The only way they're going to know if you help them do tshuva. No, no, I gave $5,000 to the rabbi. $5,000? Okay, let's say the $5,000 gets 5,000 CDs. Okay, what about the other 19,995,000? How are you going to get to them? Oh, it's somebody else's problem. Okay, so the house's money is also somebody else's problem. So first you have to nullify your own will. First you have to make sure that you are fulfilling your obligation to Hashem Barach. You have money, you have to give ma'asel. It's not just the guy, it's also ma'asel. But aside from that, your desire for money, your desire for material things, is it because you need it or because you want it? Do you need an extension to your house because you have Ochim coming every every week? All the people from out of town, all the Rabbanim, all the Tzaddikim are coming to your house every week? Or it's just the neighbors because you want to show off how nice your house is? Which is, by the way, it's not a, uh, it's not a mitzvah. It could potentially be a sin. Bringing all your neighbors to see how nice your house is and how your wife is the greatest master chef, that's not a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. Mitzvah of Ochim, of bringing guests, is bringing people that don't have any other choice. They're visitors to the community, they don't have any parents, they don't have any friends, they don't know anybody, converts, orphans, widows, homeless. You have to be careful with homeless in today's age, unfortunately, because there's a lot of crazy people, so you're not obligated to bring all the homeless people into your house. But nonetheless... If you're extending your house, there has to be a reason for it. If it's to show off, it's not a mitzvah. You have a problem. So first we have to learn from last week's Mishnah, Bed Dalet, which is, Levatel Retzonenu. To nullify our own will in order to do Hashem's will. Once we do His will, whatever you have extra, whatever you have left, enjoy. Do whatever you want. Build your IRA account, invest in the stock market, build your house, build your second house, build five houses. I don't care. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference to Hashem either. But first, make sure that your surroundings are okay. You can't go up to Shemaim and say, hey, listen, Hashem, look how many houses I have. Okay, but how many Jews did you help do tshuva? Oh, no one. Okay. You didn't do any mitzvot, my friend. So this week's Mishnah, Bet Hey, which is 2.5, we move on to Hillel. We already learned a few things that Hillel said before. But he continues, Hillel Omer, Al tifrosh min 
ואל תאמין בעצמך עד יום, עד יום מותך, ואל תדין את חברך עד שתגיע למקומו, ואל תאמר דבר שאי אפשר לשמוע, שסופו להישמע, ואל תאמר לכשאפנה אשנה, שמה לא תיפנה. Translation, הלל says, do not separate yourself from the community, do not believe in yourself until the day you die, do not judge your fellow until you have reached his place, do not make a statement that cannot be easily understood, on the ground that it will be understood eventually, and do not say, when I am free I will study, for, for perhaps you will never become free. So it's a very deep Mishnah, long Mishnah, and Bezat Hashem, we'll go through each part of it. You do me a favor, cool it off of you, I'm burning up a little bit. Okay. It's going to be spot. Yeah, it's uh, Israeli hot blood. So Hillel is telling us some things that if you read the plain, simple English, plain, simple Hebrew, make a lot of sense just by itself. Just the pshat is already life-changing if you actually apply it to your life. But we're going to dig a little deeper into it. First, he says, do not separate yourself from the community. In today's age, it's actually very easy to do the opposite. Meaning, in today's age, it's very easy to leave a community. There's so many problems in every community. There's so many problems in practically every single synagogue. I've never heard of a synagogue with no problems. So much so that there's humor after. They make jokes. They say that one time there was nine Jews on a boat, and they stopped at an island. Stopped at an island, and they see, psh, sign, synagogue. Wow, synagogue in the middle of nowhere. Great, they start following the sign. They see not one synagogue, they see two. Two beautiful synagogues. It's like, wow, this Jewish congregation here must be huge. And I see this little homeless guy running out of one of the synagogues. Hey, welcome, welcome. Like, so they're looking with his family, his friends, Kila, something. He finally gets there. Hey, where's everybody else? He goes, no, no, I'm the only one here. No, come on, you're kidding with us. There's two synagogues. He goes, hey, I built them. You built both synagogues? Yeah. How many people are here? He goes, just me. Wait a minute. Why is there two synagogues and only one you? He goes, oh, that's the synagogue that I go to. And that one, Dafka, I don't go to. That's today's world. Today, we almost have as many synagogues as we have Jews. We have a lot of synagogues, but it's hard to get a minyan. This rabbi says this, we don't like it, we leave. This rabbi says that, we don't like it, we leave. This rabbi doesn't say anything. Okay, we're going to come. But if he says something, then we're firing him. So what happens is that we started this thing in the last few hundred years called the board. A board of directors for a synagogue. One of the historical tragedies that happened in Judaism. In the old days, the one that funded and ran and ruled the synagogue was the rabbi. The rabbi... Once people started donating to the synagogue and they started to make a board and they started ruling it, Judaism started going into bankruptcy. Because the one that holds the dollar thinks that he also holds the opinion. And unfortunately in today's age, that's what it is. Now this would be okay 
if the board had requirements, you must be, in order to be on the board, you must be not only a shield, not just rich, because you're going to get money, right? Not just rich. Rich is it's fine. If you're rich, it's good. So plus. But before the rich, fear of the Almighty. That's it. Nothing else. One requirement. You don't have to be Biki Bashas. You don't have to be a Shulchan Aruch expert. You don't have to be that. Fear of the Almighty. You have fear of the Almighty? You're welcome to the board. Unfortunately, in today's age, it's hard to find one. One guy that has fear of the Almighty. It's hard. You talk to people by Yad Shamayim in some synagogues, like, no, 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 shh. Don't talk like that here. It's too much. It's like almost like a curse word. People are scared of Yad Shamayim. Like, no, no, we talk about Avat Hashem. Avat Hashem, we love Hashem. We love Hashem. Not that we don't fear Him. Well, here's the problem. According to Chazal, it's not possible. It's not possible to love Hashem without fearing Him first. Because the highest level, there's levels of Yirah, there's levels of Ava. Just like your wife tells you how much you love me, you say a million. No, no, but from one to ten. Oh, two million. Husband wants his wife to love him back, wants to have Shalom Bayit, that's what he says. An idiot, what does he say? Oh, like an eight and a half. Oh, okay, here's the divorce paper, honey. So, since there's levels and everything, there's levels of Yirat Shamayim. The highest level of Yirat Shamayim is Chazal, not me. Highest level of Yirat Shamayim is the beginning, beginning, meaning the lowest level of Avat Hashem. Beginning. Meaning when you got to the Yirat Shamayim of Eyov, Eyov, Job, they wrote a book about him in the Torah, one of the 24 books in the Torah. You got to the Yirat Shamayim of Eyov, then you can say, okay, I'm starting to love Hashem. Starting. So when you say, oh no, no, I love Hashem, we won't talk about love, we won't talk about love. I don't know, unless you think you're bigger than Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Eliezer HaGadol, Moshe Rabbeinu, Avraham Avinu, and if you're bigger than them, maybe you're the Mashiach. We've been talking about this whole time, expose yourself. We've been waiting for you for a few thousand years. But if you're not, then you're mistaken. So Hillel is telling us first and foremost, do not leave your community even though it's easy to. Even though you have every reason in the world to leave your community, don't leave it so easily. Don't be one of these people that just prays by himself all the time and think it's okay. There are certain conditions where you're allowed to leave the community, there are certain conditions you're not allowed to leave the community. If you just don't feel like being part of a community, you're wrong, you're not allowed. You have to be part of the community, you have to pray with Minyan. You have to be, if the community is doing a big mitzvah, some type of mitzvah, they have a siyum ashas, they want to do a celebration, they have all the chagim, you have to come, you have to pray with them, you have to join the congregation. Can't be a Jew alone. You're not Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that goes into the cave. You're not. In case you're wondering, Hashem sent me here to tell you not. Baruch Hashem. So now, you're not allowed to be alone. 
You have to stay. So the question is, what if I'm surrounded by Rishayim? It's a good question. What if I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that call themselves Orthodox Jews, but in reality they're more Reformed than Orthodox? The women are wearing a bikini with a kisurosh. Or the kisurosh. But it's like a kisurosh with a uh, jeans. Like the Arabs. Or no kisurosh. No bikini. But you can pretty much tell how she looks like when she's alone with her husband because the clothes are so tight. And it's the entire congregation is like this. And the rabbi doesn't say a word about it. You have a problem. What about if you have a synagogue? And the synagogue makes sure that we reserve a big parking lot for everybody to drive on Shabbat. Guy tells me, yeah, no, no. Every Shabbat I'm here. Five o'clock in the morning, I'm already in my car. Comes to Nets on Shabbat with his car. You have a problem. Now, unfortunately, since this is such a massive problem all over the United States, it's virtually impossible to find a shul where there's no Mechalel Shabbat. So obviously you have to make sure that, number one, there's at least 10 Shomre Shabbat. There's at least 10 that are Shomre Shabbat. In New York, it's a lot easier to find synagogues because, Bo Hashem, you have much bigger Orthodox, real Orthodox communities. The rest of the country, it's much more difficult. In New York, you can walk everywhere. Everywhere else, you have to drive. In Florida, everything's 20 minutes away. We go to stores, 20 minutes away. Doctor, 20 minutes away. Everything's 20 minutes away. Synagogue's 20 minutes away. So unless you want to pay top dollar for a house next to the synagogue, or able to even, everything's 20 minutes away. It becomes difficult, especially in this Gehenom heat they have here in Florida. No, it prepares us a little bit. So, it's difficult, it's expensive. We need Hashem's help to be able to afford all of this. We need Hashem's help to be able to handle all of this. So it's very, very difficult to find a shul that doesn't have, that doesn't have Mechalei Shabbat. So you have, obviously, you have, and you try to help them, you try to save them. But on top of that, you have to make sure that, number one, you have a kosher minyan, Number two, you have a kosher rav. If your rabbi is a kofel, what are you doing there? Find a new place. Obviously, you can't just move every day. So before you go to any place, before you move any place, Zat Hashem, some of you are going to get married soon. You have to find a place to live. You can't live with Ima and Abba forever. Right? You have to find a place to live. You have to decide where am I going to live. I'm going to live in New York. I'm going to live in Florida. I'm going to live here. I'm going to live there. The good news is, Hashem already gave you the answer. How to pick where you live. He gave you Parashat Shavua. Parashat Vayigash. After the brothers came to Yaakov Avinu, they told him, Abba, our brother Yosef is still alive. Brother Yosef is still alive in the beginning. Chazal says he didn't believe them. Yaakov didn't believe his sons. Each one of them is Malach Hashem. Each one of them is always to be a Malach, Mamash, an angel. He doesn't believe them. 
They say he's alive, and he's the viceroy, a.k.a. king of Egypt. Chazal says Yaakov didn't believe his sons. When did he believe his sons? After he saw the agalot. After he saw the carriages outside. Well, you believe the cows? You don't believe your sons? Now what's going on here, Yaakov? It says, when someone goes up the ladder financially, unfortunately, his spirituality drops drastically. It's like the Muslim, the scale. You put lead on this one, it's going to go down, right? The one with the feathers is going to go up. You put money in your pocket, according to Chazal, more times than not, your Gemara is going to get a little lighter. Your Chumash is going to get a little more dust on it. Your Mitzvot, maybe a little weaker. You eat Bodedut, you're going to let Hashem do it Bodedut by Himself. Go Hashem, it's all you. what happens. That's why in the Gemara Masechet Abu Chazal says there was no better midah, there's no better character trait that I saw in Am Yisrael other than poverty. Meaning the greatest midah that Am Yisrael has is when they're poor. But Hashem wants to give us Shefa. Hashem wants to give us Parnasah. Last week we talked about Parnasah. But he says it's the greatest Jews is when they're poor. Why? They don't have all this tavo, these cars they have to chase, the competitions they have to run after, the houses they have to build, the companies they have to merge with, the plastic surgeries they're trying to figure out if they're going to do or not. They don't have all this shtuyot. They're focusing on Hashem Barach. And when you're poor, what are you focusing on? Hashem, please help me. Because you have no hope. When you're poor, you do it with a dude. You're rich. It's like Hashem. You do it with a dude by yourself. You let me know how it was. Someone wants to give you a dvar Torah. Say, can you just email me that? Everything I say for the next two hours. Can you just email it to me? You know, in five bullets. Sum it up in five bullets. I'm busy. I'm busy making millions. Marah says, better you were poor. So how do we convince Hashem to give us some money, give us some panasah? Obviously, we have to make sure that we don't fall. We have to make sure that we do what's on Hashem. We have to make sure that when Hashem gives us something, we use it to fulfill His will. He gives us a house, use it for mitzvot, fill it up with books that you're actually going to read. Don't have one of these sifriyot, a beautiful sifriyah. Everything's brand new. No one's ever opened it. Brand new, Sifriya, a lot of books, Shukhan Aruch, this, that, everything, Gemara, Zohar, Sifre Tzadikim, everything you want, but nobody ever opened it. It's like a museum. You tell me, you know what Gemara is? Oh, I don't remember if I have it. So many books, I never read them. No, I'll have one of those houses. Have books, you're going to read them. That's number one. Two, have mitzvot in the house. Bring Shurat Torah to your house. Bring guests to your house. Bring Hashem into your house. And make sure you have Shlom Bait. Because Hashem 
cannot come to a house that doesn't have Shalom Bait. It's a Mishnah. It says when there's peace between a man and his wife, Shekhinah Benem. Meaning the Shekhinah is between them. When there's peace between a husband and a wife, Shekhinah is there. Meaning, there's no peace, there's no Shekhinah. Someone wants Parnassah, has to have Shalom Bait. You don't want Parnassah? Okay, just yell at your wife. Go, enjoy. Enjoy. Get Gainom here and over there. So first and foremost, Hashem is telling us, listen, this money test that you want, all this money you keep praying for is a very big test. It's a very, very big test. If you're praying for money, you have to be very, very careful what you pray for. That's why if you actually look at some of the Sipuret Sadikim in the past, for example, like the Chazonish or people of this generation, they would actually run away from money. When someone would give him, oh, give me, why don't you give your son a blessing to be rich? Because you know, I don't know, once I, have, I don't have money now. I know I can handle the test. If I have money, I don't know if I can handle the test. So before you pray for money, think about it. So first and foremost, we have to understand that before we make a decision of leaving the tzibu, leaving the keilah, we have to have a reason. If the keilah is doing a mitzvah, they're tzadikim, or at least they're trying to be, stick around. But if you have bad leadership, leadership that's anti-Torah, you have a keilah that's staying exactly where they are, or they're moving backwards, or chas v'shalom, they're already reshaim, you must move. Now according to the Rambam, he says if you don't have a place to move, stay in the house, don't leave the house. Don't leave the house. If you have a place to move, then move. But if you can't afford another house, move to the desert. So the scorpion and the snake, they're going to be your neighbors. At least they're going to keep mitzvot. You're not allowed to live next to Rashaim. Not allowed to. Up to what extent, up to what extent, to give you an idea, up to what extent, Shuchan Aruch says something very, very scary. According to Shuchan Aruch, you're not allowed to let your daughter marry an Amaretz. Or even the son of an Amaretz. Father's Amaretz. The son is Toso. Not allowed to let your daughter marry him. The question is, who's an Amaretz? Ravadia Zechet Sadiq Vekadosh Livacha said, Amaretz in our generations, Mechalel Shabbat. Some Mechalel Shabbat is Amaretz. He's so ignorant, he doesn't even know he has to keep Shabbat. You're not allowed to marry him. So sometimes I have old friends, I try to help them out, maybe try to get them a shiduch. I tell them you have to keep Shabbat. I don't, uh, I don't do zivugim with uh, Michalei Shabbat. Yeah, but she's nice, she's pretty, she's this. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I'm not going to have a tzaddikah, marry a rasha. No, no, but I'll keep Shabbat. Okay, keep Shabbat for two years, then I'll talk to you. Keep Shabbat for one year, then I'll talk to you. Can't keep Shabbat for the girl. Why? Because what if one day you get a little kriza, 
a little upset, you're going to stop keeping Shabbat because you kept it for the girl. It's that conversions. You can't convert to the guy, you can't convert for the girl. You have to keep Shabbat for Hashem, you have to convert for Hashem, you have to do tshuva for Hashem. So first do it, then we'll talk. All these guys, if they only knew how many, how many women are looking for someone that just keeps basic level mitzvot. Not even looking for big tzaddikim, just basic level mitzvot. Keep Shabbat, learn Torah 15-20 minutes a day in the morning, at night maybe a little bit more. Keep mitzvot, wear tzitzit, look like a Jew. Stop with the goyish haircuts and the goyish clothes. Stop looking at everything that moves like a mamtera, one of these fountains outside, sprinkly waters. Your head's looking at every woman that moves. Women are waiting for somebody at Sadiq. But the guy's like, no, no, I'm waiting for the right one. Okay, but you're 49 years old, buddy. When are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Okay, fine, I'll, you know, set me up. Like, I can't set you up. I love you, you're a nice guy, but according to Torah, you consider the Rasha. You don't keep Shabbat. Rasha doesn't mean you're an evil person. Rasha means you're going against Hashem, which is worse. Keep Shabbat. Then that's the beginning. Because Hashem will help you do, do anything you want. Just show Hashem you care. Even if you don't like it. Place that you don't want it, eventually you're going to want it. Many people are looking for zivugim, many people are looking for blessing from Hashem. All they got to do is show Hashem, hey, listen, Hashem, okay, I got you, I got the point. Let me start doing something. So, first and foremost, we have to understand that before we leave a congregation, we're looking in the mirror. We're looking in the mirror first, not just looking at the congregation. You can't complain about them driving on Shabbat and you're driving on Shabbat also. Oh no, no, I can't do tshuva around these people. You're blaming them for you not doing tshuva. Just like they're not going to go to Gainum for you, you're not going to go to Gainum for them. At least not electively. Everybody's responsible for their own sins. You want to go to a better congregation? Fine. But you can't leave a congregation and blame all your problems on them. First you have to look in the mirror. The next thing is to understand that to be part of a community, to be part of a congregation is critical when it comes to prayer. Because unfortunately, most of us can't have 100% kavanah when we pray. Can't have 100% kavanah when we pray. Sometimes we pray, we have kavanah, we feel close to Hashem, we feel like we're on fire. But a good fire, like it's amazing. I love Hashem, I'm connected to Him. I have Yirat Shamaim, Avat Shamaim. I remember what I learned, I want to learn more. I understand what I'm saying in the prayer, I want to say it again. You're so deep into the prayer, instead of being six minutes, it's a half hour. By the way, six minutes is not recommended, it should be a little longer. You're not in the race. Imagine, you have, a present, you have a meeting with the king. You're going to hurry him up? Hey, no, you can't, tell me what you want. No, come on, king. Tell me what you want. No, you're going to take your time. Your highness. 
Thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for meeting me. What do you think of the weather, Your Highness? What do you think of this? You talked about everything. You have an opportunity to meet with the King of Kings. You're going to hurry it up for six minutes. No, King, I'm busy. Go, go. So first and foremost, we have to understand that tefillah by ourselves is not always 100%. And Chazal tells us that when our tefillah is not very good, it hits a roadblock in Shemaim. I'm sure you all heard this. Why do we pray with the Minyan? Because Hashem has mercy on us and He knows what His creation is. So he says, at least if you pray with a Minyan, I'm going to take the best piece of each one and make it into one prayer. What is it like? The Rabbi Arun Luria said, this is like, I'm sorry, this is Rabbi Bunam of Pshischa. said, what is this like? This is like comparing giving somebody an old ugly coin as payment or giving him a bunch of coins that are okay with one ugly coin in it. If you have the one ugly coin that's like almost broken, they'll tell you, do me a favor, give me something else. Give me a different bill. You know, you give like, you know, sometimes you want to pay somebody and you give them like the crumpled half-ripped $20. And you guys like, give me like a regular $20, please. Tape this one, do something. You give me this homeless $20. Give me a regular $20, right? But if you gave the guy a wad of a thousand bucks and there's a few homeless ones inside that are ripped, that are crumbled, that are this, you think he's going to say, give me different ones? No. Why? Because it's in there. It's part of the whole chavilah. It's part of the package. It's fine. That's our tefillah. That's our tefillah. If it's just you by yourself and your prayer is homeless, Shem is going to say, give me something else. Do me a favor. Give me something else. I don't want this. Part of a minyan, a minyan is kosher, not mechal Shabbat and reshaim. You have at least 10 kosher people in there. Then, my friend, if there's a couple of ones that are not so good, it's okay. We'll let it pass. There's enough good here. I'll take the best piece of each one. What's your question? I read in a book that if you waste seeds, you have like a 0.1% 0, 0. chance of your prayer getting answered. Okay. If you don't waste seed, even if you pray by yourself, you will still get answered. Only if you're in a minyan. By yourself, by yourself, if you, it's very, very hard to get your prayers answered if you don't have kavanah. If you don't have kavanah, you have a very, very serious problem. So, Sunny likes Gemara, so I try to bring some Gemara now. So Gemara, Masechet Brachot, it says something very, very interesting. First thing is just in general, sometimes you hear people sneeze, sneeze in the Beknesset. Uh, you know, if you're Sephardic, you believe in everything that's mystical. If you're Ashkenazi, 50%. So people think sometimes, oh, you did this, maybe it's a bad sign, maybe it's a bad, everybody looks for signs. Even though Hashem said to Avraham Avinu, don't look for signs, we look for signs in everything. So somebody sneezes in Beknesset. What do you think it is, Amos? It's good or bad? If he sneezes in the Beknesset. Bad. Sonny, what do you think? 
No, we're not gambling here. Well, since he's looking for the right answer. He sneezed in the middle of prayer. Amida, you're meeting with the king of kings. King of kings. Now, what's the biggest nightmare? I'll tell you guys a, uh, a fact. What is the biggest nightmare that presidents have and kings have when they're about to meet another king? To sneeze in the middle of the meeting. Why? Because when you sneeze, you show that you have lack of control of your body. What's a president supposed to do? Show that he controlled the entire country. Entire world. I'm Gibo. But you sneeze, your whole body, is, you can't control it. You look like a little, you know, like you have some type of disease. And everybody's like, ugh. You know, maybe he's got a cold, maybe he's this. Like, I don't really want to, do I have to shake your hand? How about this? Give the guy a palm. Now this guy in the Bikneset, he never shakes anybody's hands. Uh, you know, he's one of those people. So he gives, gives the, uh, the, the pound. I said, don't give anything. Just say hi and that's it. You don't have to. It's actually weirder that you're giving people that are 60-year-old a pound. Either shake the hand or just say, well, nod or something. Yeah, yeah, strange people, strange people. So it's a bad thing. You know, president doesn't want to sneeze if uh, Putin is going to meet Trump and Trump sneezes. It's not going to be very comfortable. They're going to cut that out of the video. If so Hashem wants him to sneeze, he'll sneeze. Huh? But the Gemara says actually something very surprising. Ken says Labriut. That's why we say Labriut, by the way. Hazal says the reason why we say Labriut to health. Is because in the old days, in the times of Yaakov Avinu, before Hashem made people get old, before Yaakov Avinu, they didn't get old. Everybody looked the same. They reached 25 years old. That's it. They wouldn't age anymore. You're 150 years old. You look 25. So how'd they die? Eventually, one day the time was over. But they didn't get sick. So one day they would sneeze, die. On the spot. So everybody would say, oh, you know, a guy sneezed, it's going to die. So from that point on, anytime somebody sneezes, they say, Labriot, so you live. That's where it came from. But actually the Gemara, in Masechet Barachot, page 24b, it says, Amit atesh betfilato siman yafelo. One who sneezes from his nose. During his prayer, it is a good omen for him. It's good. Lama it's good. Keshem she'osim lo nachat ruach milmata, kach osim lo nachat ruach milmala. Just like they give him satisfaction below, meaning in this world, so do they give him satisfaction in heaven. Meaning, just like their sneezing is actually a form of enjoyment. It's a form of enjoyment. You're cleaning out your nostrils, you're relieving some tension. It's very uncomfortable to have to be like one of those, and for like 20 minutes, you're like, you want to sneeze, but you can't. It's the most uncomfortable thing in the world. I can tell you as a public speaker, it's the worst. You, know, you look retarded a little bit. You like something's wrong with you. We just want to sneeze. We just want to sneeze. No. So it says, if Hashem lets you sneeze, it's okay. He's giving you pleasure. You know that spice that makes you want to sneeze? Can you smell it before you pray? They smell usually. You smell it. You have always chidushim. You have all these chidushim. Okay. No, it's not. It's not for the sneezing person. Not for the sneezing purposes. They give it to you. Maybe it satisfies your hunger or things like that. 
But they say just like they let you enjoy from, they give you enjoyment while your prayer, they're also accepting your prayer. That's a good sign. But what's the Musaf here? We have a problem in our generation. We have people, he says, if you sneeze, sneezing is something that happens naturally, meaning you're not intentionally sneezing. It happens. In today's lack of Musar world, when we don't teach Musar in Bateknesset, when we are scared to mention even the words Yilat Shamaim, you have people that go to Bateknesset, and what do they do? They blow their nose for 20 minutes in the middle of tefillah. First of all, it's extremely distracting. I'm trying to pray to Hashem Barak, the King of Kings. I'm trying to like, Hashem, help me. Hashem, Hashem, people have diseases. People are getting divorces. People that are sick. People that are this. People are that. And like, get this guy blowing his nose like he's a, a fountain. 20 minutes, he's blowing his nose. How much do you have in there? So, first of all, it's very distracting. Second of all, it's complete disrespect not only the Keilah, but Hashem Barach. You're going into his house at the place where everybody's praying. You go inside the Bet HaMikdash. Right next to the Kodesh Kodeshim. The Kohen Agadol is about to pray if he thinks the wrong thing. Thinks the wrong thing, he dies and the whole nation gets punished. He takes the wrong thing. And you're with your, with your nose. Everybody's trying to pray, Hashem, help us. There's kings that are going against us. The entire world just voted that Israel is an illegal country. We're on a verge of war on any given day. We're on a verge of pogroms on any given day, Hashem Rechem. All Jews are so comfortable in America, in Europe, in Israel, everywhere, we're so comfortable. We were also comfortable 70 years ago. We're also comfortable 250 years ago. We're also comfortable 500 years ago. We're also very comfortable 2,000 years ago. Very comfortable. Until Hashem made it uncomfortable. I'm trying to get Hashem to give mercy. And you're blowing your nose. Go to the bathroom. You selfish person, go to the bathroom. I don't want to hear your snotty nose. But aside from it being disgusting and lack of respect for the Kila, it's lack of respect for Hashem Barach. Now because we're so politically correct, and we're so scared of like, you know, offending someone, Chas Shalom, he's ever going to do tshuva and actually stop being a rasha and interfering, everybody is a uh, uh, prayer. We don't do anything. So what happens? There's actually a few people. I know in Bikness, there's one specific one. One specific one, he always somehow, I don't know, every time he sits right next to me. Like three rows up. And every time right before the tefillah, oh man, ooh, it's like there is like a, a fountain connected to his head that comes out of his nose. Five minutes straight he's blowing his nose. I can't take it, I have to leave the Bekneset. I don't understand, go somewhere else. Go to the bathroom. Why do you have to blow your nose inside the Bekneset? Always at the same time? That's a unique case. I've never seen like, there's something wrong with you. I mean, uh, maybe you should go see a doctor. 
That much? Every day you have to blow your nose that much? Five minutes straight? Thousand people in the kila. This guy's sitting next to me. I get these tikkunim. So first and foremost, a message to all of you nose blowers. Go to the bathroom. Just like you wouldn't blow your nose in front of the CEO of the company that you work for. Just like you wouldn't blow your nose in front of a king of a country. Just like you wouldn't blow your nose in front of a shiduch. If you're trying to impress a woman or you're trying to impress a man. And say, hey, how are you? My name is Dave. Hold on a second. Shake your hand. Who wants to touch you, Bichlal? Go wash your hands. Wash your face. Fix yourself. Stop blowing your nose and bektis it. Go outside, finish, come back. I'm not saying you have tzara'at, but don't make me feel like you do with five minutes of blowing your nose. Enough. It's disgusting. It's disturbing. That's the second thing we learned from this Gemara. Not so bad. We're going to make a clip out of this one. We're going to call the... A uh, 911 to all the nose blowers. Okay, so now. In the same Gemara, it talks about how to pray. Tfilat Amida, anytime it mentions Tfilah, or Amida, it means Tfilat Shmonaisle. It means the. Core of foundation of tefillah. We have to do three times a day as a man, at least once a day for women. Women, since they're not bound to doing the mitzvot that are bound to time, they can choose whichever one they want. It's recommended to uh, to do the tefillah in of shachrit for women, but it's not mandatory. You could do shachrit, you could do mincha, you could do arvit. But you have to do it according to Shulchan Aruch. You must do one Amidah per day. And as far as Shema Yisrael, you should do the entire Shema Yisrael once per day. But if you don't have time, you you know you have kids and so on, you just have to at least say Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Just the first verse. But Amidah, you have to do at least once a day as a woman. If you could do more, Shaykh. Who wouldn't want more meetings with Hashem? But now it says here, One who allows his voice to be heard while reciting his prayer, he is one of those that has little faith. So wait a minute. Praying out loud, trying to get into it, screaming Amen. He says, I have no emunah. What do you mean? I'm excited, I'm breastlift, I'm celebrating, happy, happy. No? First of all, we have to understand this is talking about tefillah, it's talking about Shmonaisri, talking about Amida. So, Amar Ravuna. Ravuna said, the rabbis did not teach this except in the case of one who is able to concentrate while praying quietly. Such a person may not pray out loud. But if one is unable to concentrate 
While praying quietly, mutar, he's allowed to pray out loud. However, these words are stated only in the case of one who prays alone. But in the case of one who prays with a congregation, with a keilah, even if he can't concentrate when praying quietly, he may not pray out loud, since he will come thereby to confuse the congregation. Explanation. Now according to Chazal, when you pray, you're actually supposed to say the words out loud. You're supposed to say them out loud. But out loud, so you can hear it. Not so the entire community hears it. You can hear yourself. If you're about to write, you're just starting out, it's a little, it takes a little time to get used to it. But in general, you have to pray out loud enough for you to hear it, but just you. Now here in the Gemara it says, if you're praying and you can't concentrate, can't concentrate, you're by yourself, you're not with a keilah, and you're, just, you're thinking about the game, you're thinking about your job, you're thinking about your boss, you're thinking about your girlfriend, you're thinking about all these stuyot, then you have to get into it. One of the ways to get into it is to actually say the words louder. Concentrate, you know, by saying the words out loud, so it ends up you use multiple senses. First and foremost, you use your speech. And you're also using your ears to hear yourself. So now you're using more, more senses, you can actually connect to the prayer even more. That's why also studying, when you study Torah, you should study out loud. It helps your memory. Because you're using multiple senses. When Buya, the wife of Rabbi Meir Balanes, saw an avrech, one of the people, one said, he came in the kolel, studying Torah, but he's reading to himself. She kicked his chair. He says, don't you know that you can't study Torah without saying it out loud? You're not going to remember anything. Just wasting your time. Tochen mine, grinding water. Boya was tzadikah, very zealous. So anyway, it says if you can't get concentration, pray out loud. Get into it as loud as you need to completely focus. And I can tell you from personal experience, the best prayers I've ever had have been by myself when I, still, when I do it out loud. But the Gemara says something very, very critical at the end. He says, this only pertains if you're praying alone. If you're praying alone, you can pray out loud. But if you're praying with a keilah, you're praying with a, with a congregation, under no condition can you pray out loud. It doesn't matter if you can't concentrate. It's better that you don't pray at all than disturb the entire keilah with your out loud prayer. You know, somebody wants to be like an extra tzaddik. You know, you always have one of these people in the Beknesset. He's an extra tzaddik. So he makes all these strange moves. Sometimes he's extra loud. Sometimes he's like this, and he's like moving, and you think he's like on trance. You think he's high on something. And he makes all these faces, and he's like, he's like is something wrong with him, or he's just connected to Hashem. 
You don't need all that. You don't need all that pantomime. Pray like an old human being. Don't be so distracting to everyone else. Hashem knows that you mean it even when you don't make these strange sounds. Hashem knows that you mean it even when you don't move and hit everybody next to you. He knows you mean it. He knows it's okay. But most importantly, the Gemara is teaching you, stop being selfish. If you're part of a congregation like Hillel says, then you have to care about the congregation. Not just care about you. You have to act as if all of our prayers are important. Not just yours. Where I have to do it extra loud because I can't have kavanah. If I don't do it loud, yeah, but then you're going to ruin 30 other people's prayer if you do it loud because they can't concentrate about their prayer if they're listening to you. So stop being selfish. Just like the nose uh, blowers before. Oh, I have to clear up. Come on, for the love. I have sinus infection. Okay, sinus infection outside. Finish with the sinus infection. Come back inside. Which also, by the way, you're not allowed to go to Beknesset if you're sick. Like a lot of people get colds and they think they're doing a mitzvah by going to Beknesset. It's not a mitzvah. It's an avirah. It's actually a sin. You're going to get other people sick. Stay home. Amen. No, it's not. It's, not, it's, it's 100%. You're not allowed to jeopardize other people's lives for your mitzvah. There's no mitzvah ba ba'avera. Can't make a mitzvah by doing avera. Like I had this guy, was, uh, I saw him one time, and uh, you know, he's, hey, how are you? How you doing? Everything great, great, great. He sees my uh, baby daughter, wants to hug her, wants to kiss her. Two minutes later, I see the guy is like sneezing everywhere. He's, oh, yeah, yeah, I just had pneumonia. Well, you just held my kid, you chamor. You had pneumonia. What do you think you're doing me a favor? Are holding her right now? You she gets sick. People have no consideration for the congregation. They have no consideration for the world around them. Why? Because they don't listen to Hillel. Hillel says, "Alti Don't separate yourself from the congregation. Not just physically, mentally. You have to constantly think about everyone around you. You're either going to be a Kiddush Hashem or a Chilul Hashem. The keeper is not going to help you. The beer is not going to help you. Your actions will. If you act like a tzaddik, then you can be Kiddush Hashem. You're going to care about your surroundings. You're going to be Kiddush Hashem. But if you're one of those fakers that wears the hat and the beard and everything else, but you go to casinos on the weekend... It's better off you don't do anything. So, to separate ourselves from the community, already this is just the first small part of this Mishnah, already we see how many different parts of our lives it already has to do with. Next part. Do not believe in yourself until the day that you die. A lot of people, Baruch Hashem, are doing tshuva these days. The last 20 years has been a major tshuva movement. People are getting back to Hashem. Amazing rabbis like Rabbi Mizrahi have been doing it for over 20 years, helping people do tshuva. Several other major rabbis have helped other people do tshuva. Rabbi Nisim Yagen, Zechat Tzadik, Vikadosh Livacha. 
helped build communities. Sometimes people do tshuva, they start keeping Shabbat, start keeping kosher, start praying, six months into it, a year into it, they think they turn into Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. No, no, pachot velo yeter. They keep Shabbat for a few months, think that tzaddikim. Rabbi, doing great. You wouldn't believe it. In the morning, I do netil adidaim. At night, I also do netil adidaim. Even though I don't have to. But I do it anyway. Machmir. I make sure that my hands are always pure. Kodarab, you wouldn't believe it. Now, on Shabbat, I have three chalot. Not two, three. And my yain, lo mebushal. All these things. Listen, you want to be mekubal, you want to be somebody special, you want to do all these things, fine. But remember this Mishnah, my friend. Don't trust yourself, don't believe in yourself, and don't even think that you're even a partial tzaddik. Don't even think that you're even partially okay. Why? There was someone bigger than you. Much, much bigger than you. In the Gemara, Masechet Brachot, page 29a, it talks about the story of Yochanan, who was a Kohen Gadol, Meaning, the top Mekubal in all of Am Yisrael. Yochanan was the Kohen Gadol, meaning he went to Kodesh Kodeshim every Yom Kippur, prayed for the entire nation. He couldn't even have a bad thought. You have one bad thought, you die. On the spot. No second, no second chance, no tshuva. That's why they would have to tie a chain to his leg. With little uh, bells. pomegranates, bells on the chain, because if it stopped, because every time he would move, it would ring, ding, 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 they know he's alive. As soon as there's no more bells, let's say he died. We know he fell, that's it, the bell stopped. So what do they do? They pull the chain, because they can't go inside the Kodesh Kodeshim. Anyone who goes to the Kodesh Kodeshim, other than Kohen Gadot, dies on the spot. No correct, dies, dies. So the Kohen Gadol had to be the ultimate Mekubal, the ultimate Sadiq. The ultimate everything. You had to do this for a few minutes every Yom Kippur. If you had a bad thought, if you just thought about, not sure if my wife is cooking schnitzel or, I don't know, a pasta tonight. For a second, for a second. To break the fast. I'm not sure if my wife is cooking nokides or she's cooking chuld to break the uh, fast for Yom Kippur. He thought about this for a second. He's hungry, Biskin. He's hungry. He hasn't eaten. It's hungry. Stick your this for a second. Shem Rechem dies on the spot. So you have to do this. Imagine not having any thought in your mind for five minutes, other than Hashem. Try it for half a minute. Half a minute. Sometimes you have people that they study Torah. They study Torah. There's a story actually says. Guy wakes up in the morning. And he says to his wife, you wouldn't believe it. I had a dream about Hashem. I had a dream about Hashem. Oh Hashem, the wife's like, of course you can have a dream about Hashem. You're my tzaddik husband. 
You study in a kollel all day. Of course, you're going to dream about Hashem. It says in the Gemara, Masech Barachot. Where do your dreams come from? From all the stuff you see, the things you experience. That's where your, your dreams come from. It's not all prophecy. You see things. You're going to dream about them. Which also means you look at girls. You're going to dream about girls. You're going to waste seed. And then, if anyone didn't watch the three and a half hour comprehensive shiur that we had about wasting seed, you should watch it. Because it also talks about the genom that you go to if you don't stop not protecting your eyes. Yeah. So now, the wife is not surprised that her husband dreamed about Hashem. She says, Honey, of course you dream about Hashem. You studied Torah all day. You're a tzaddik. You thought about Hashem. He goes, No, honey, I didn't think about Hashem. She goes, What do you mean? You're studying Torah all day. Because, yeah, I was studying the halachot, I was studying this, I, was studying, I didn't actually think about Hashem, I was studying, you know, just reading. Sometimes somebody studies, but he forgets about Hashem. Sometimes somebody's praying, but he forgets he's praying to Hashem. Thinks he's praying, you know, because that's what he has to do. He's reading, because he's reading. He's doing the lulav and the etrog, because he's doing the lulav and the etrog, because that's what you do. Just like the little African guy in the middle of the jungle walks around with underwear because that's normal to them. The guy is wearing the hat and the beard and, you know, with the lulav and everything because it's normal to him. He got used to it. One of the biggest diseases infesting the Jewish world for hundreds and hundreds of years is getting used to it. We get used to it. We lose our kavanah. We lose our meaning. We get used to our prayers. We get used to our mitzvot. We get used to our wives. We get used to our husbands. We stop respecting it. What is this like? In the times of the Beit HaMikdash, they say, if you went inside one door, into the Beit HaMikdash, you're not allowed to leave the Beit HaMikdash from the same door. I heard this from Ram Nisimi again, Zechet Tzadik it's from Gemara. You go into the Beit HaMikdash, you want to leave. At some point, okay, you pray, saw miracles, everything's good, you're healed, Baruch Hashem, I want to go home. Ma'a says, you're not allowed to leave from the same door. It's Mamash, you get a heavenly punishment if you leave from the same door. Not allowed. You have to leave from a different door. So Chazal says, what's the big deal? Place is packed, I'm close to the door. Let me just get out. Not allowed to leave from this door. You have to go from a different door. Lama? Chash v'shalom. You start getting used to coming in and out of the Beit HaMikdash and the walls of the Beit HaMikdash are going to start looking to you at the walls of your house. Chash v'shalom. You get used to this Beit HaMikdash this holy of holies place thinking that you should feel home and feel comfortable there. That Hashem is your friend. He's your buddy. You can talk to him whenever you feel like it. Say, hey, what's up, God? Try treat, treating him like one of the guys from the bar. Without you, ah, my friend, you have some serious problems. Because even to the Beit HaMikdash, you can't 
leave from the same door as you enter. Just because it all requires Kavod Hashem. Same thing with the marriage. A wife that wants to make sure that a husband continues to love her and attracted to her must make sure she always looks beautiful in his eyes. This is one of the major problems we have in this generation. For whatever reason or another, people watch too much TV and one of these shows or one of these programs told people that wives are allowed to wear sweatpants, sweatshirts next to their husband as soon as they come home, but to get dressed and look pretty to go to the supermarket. So when they go to see Jose and Stephen at the supermarket, they're all grand with the dress looking like a million bucks. Husband comes home, long day, fixed cars, fixed houses, fixed this, fixed that. He comes to see his wife, Tisha B'Av. Sweatpants, no makeup, no nothing. She looks like nothing. She looks like she's about to go to sleep. Yes, of course she has to go to sleep at some point. But only after her husband saw her in a good way. You want to keep your marriage fresh? You want to p- keep your husband's eyes belonging to you? Give him a reason. Because if the only times he sees you is when you're in sweatpants and sweatshirt, he's going to look somewhere else. Even if he goes to Kolel. Even if he goes to wherever he goes to. Even if he's Gdolado. How do I know this? Tzidik Marah. Tzidik Marah. Gemara says, I believe it was Choni Ma'agel. Choni Ma'agel, when there was no rain. No rain. They come to Choni Ma'agel. Say, Choni, you have a special relationship with God. Pray to Him. And let it rain. He prays, starts raining. Last time I prayed, it didn't rain. I can pray for 10 years, it won't rain. He prays, 5 minutes it rains. He comes home, people came to visit him, and they see that his wife, this is Gdolado, his wife comes out, looking all beautiful, welcoming him. She has makeup on, she's of course, she doesn't, she's not putza, she looks beautiful, but she's welcoming her husband. And the guests ask him, for the love, this is all the time? She always welcomes you like this? She always looks like a million bucks like this? Like what's, For what? And he says, she's protecting me. He says, Gdol is saying this. Someone is mentioned by name in the Gemara means he was able to revive the dead. She's protecting me. She's protecting you from what? So I don't look at any other woman. A wife that wants to keep her husband looking at her, you have to look beautiful in his eyes. I'm not saying that you have to wear a gown like your wedding every day, but you can't hang out like you just woke up 24 hours a day. You have to look beautiful. Listen, because guys are that way. You could call me sexist, you can call me this, you can call me that. This is Torah. This is what it says in the Torah. People always ask, how is it that religious people have such a Baruch Hashem success ratio, high success ratio with marriage? Even though it's not 100%, there's still a failure ratio, there's still a percentage of people that get divorced, unfortunately, there's still a percentage of people that cheat and do all types of bad things. But if you compare it to the secular world, it's no comparison. 
it's less than 10% in the religious world, it's over 80% in the secular world. Completely two different worlds. This is one of the things, this is one of the secrets, other secrets, obviously, the biggest secret of all is Tarat Mishpacha, family purity. You take a break every month, it's like you got married all over again. Brand new. You could be with your wife for 20 years, every month's a brand new thing. So, for any of you that are married, or gonna get married with Hashem, man or woman, these are rules from the Torah. This is not like a, some guy that's saying things out of his own mind because things have to happen. But this also applies to the men. According to Allah, you're not allowed to be disgusting to your wife. Meaning that these guys that think that their natural body odor that will scare away horses is something that their wife should acknowledge, accept, and welcome... You're completely mistaken. You have to take showers, you have to clean yourself, you have to maintain good hygiene, you have to look presentable. You can't look like a troll and think, no, 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 she's my wife, she signed a ketubah, she has to be with me. No, my friend, she does not have to be with you. Actually, as a matter of fact, in your ketubah, you have to be with her if she wants. She does not have to be with you. At all, ever. Meaning... You have to look pretty. And make sure you convince her. Because if you if you're smell like manure, she doesn't have to be with you. People have to start taking showers. And yes, it's funny, you guys are laughing I'm saying this, but there's actually a lot of people that will contact us and tell us, no, my wife doesn't want to be with me anymore. My husband doesn't want to be with me anymore. And then you when you get into the facts, you say, yeah, because you're gross. There's something wrong with you. You have to take care of yourself. No, that's womanly. That's for women. Women are allowed to do their eyebrows. Women are allowed to nair their hair. Men have to be men. So if you actually are nairing your hair, shaving your body, or uh, tweezing your eyebrows, it's a sin from the Torah. Every single time you do it, it's a sin from the Torah. So it's, you're not allowed to act like a woman. Only if it's something that's acceptable by societies for something to do for men. It's not acceptable. No, not not in the world, not in the real world. In the gay world that uh, we have in Miami, in the village in New York, in San Francisco, where the uh, animals are, um, you know, there's more homosexuality in the zoo than there is anywhere else in the world. Yes, it's acceptable to do your eyebrows, but it's not acceptable in modern society. If you go to regular places, they don't do their eyebrows. Guys don't do their eyebrows. There's a difference between is the difference between unibrow and a tweezing your eyebrows where they look like you're in a, a model in a Vogue magazine. You know, yes, you want you want to look like a presentable. That's one thing, but to if you if it's again, you're, it's a big big difference between tweezing six hairs to tweezing your eyebrows to look straight like you just came off of a runway show. Uh, but again, it's, a, uh, it's very, very important to look like a man. You're not supposed to look like a woman. You're not supposed to act like a woman, and the woman also is not supposed to act like a man. So a lot of these women that uh, you know, are, you know, pretty much want their husbands to be the housewives, and they're going to become the avrech uh, in the kola, the wife is going to be getalmit chacham, while the husband is, uh, you know, is knitting at home, that's not a way to live either.
Man has to be a man, wife has to be a wife. Everybody has their role. Uh, everybody's allowed to study, but the Torah, as far as in general, is supposed to come from the husband. He's supposed to be the wife's rabbi. If the wife does not respect her husband, or the husband doesn't respect the wife, you have no, mar- you have no marriage. A marriage without respect is no marriage at all. It's Gehenom. And this is also when it comes to Shlom Bayit issues. You know when, if, if something is salvageable or not, even if it's something really bad, even if, let's say, for example, there's cheating involved, or there's all types of bad things that happen in a relationship, you know generally if something is salvageable, under two, there's two things that have to stay there. One, there has to be some type of love. If they can't stand each other, if they mamash, like literally hate each other and they can't stand each other, like they just, the husband thinks of the wife and he's like, hey, you know what, I'm better off going to Gainom. Or the wife, the same thing about the husband. If there's no love, there's nothing to save. The second thing is respect. If a husband and wife don't have respect for each other, you don't have anything to build on. You have to respect each other. You have to have common courtesy because you have to have respect for a stranger. Kalvachoma, you have to have respect for your wife. You have to honor her more than you honor yourself. So if there's no respect amongst, uh, amongst a uh, couple, it makes it almost impossible to build, to rebuild. So respecting your wife is extremely important in Judaism and extremely important for your Shalom So now, Yohanan, the Kohen Gadol, that we started this, the story about, number one Jew, he was a Kohen Gadol for 80 years. Meaning 80 times he had to go to Kodesh Kodeshim and pass the test for the entire nation. Okay. Longest time for being Kohen Gadol. 80 years. 80 times he had to have prayer with full concentration. 80 times he had to make sure that his prayer is better than everyone else could even imagine. 80 times you had to make sure that the bells were still ringing because he's still alive. 80 times. So you would say, Yohanan should be right up there next to Moshe Rabbeinu. Right next to Rabbi Akiva. Right next to all the lay historia. says Yohanan was a rasha. Because at the end of his life, he turned into a Sadducee, turned into a Kufir, fell off the derech, fell off the derech, and became anti-Torah. He knew the truth. Hence the Mishnah from Hillel, don't trust yourself until you die. Because if someone like the Kohen Gadol Yochanan fell before he died after being Kohen Gadol for 80 years, what makes you so sure of yourself, the Yotzadik? What makes you so sure that tomorrow you're going to put on tefillin? What makes you so sure that you're going to keep Shabbat? What makes you so sure that you're going to still say Shema Yisrael and actually think about God? Don't be so sure of yourself. You know, one common thing that I always had with CEOs that I would deal with in the business world is they're always stressed out. 
they pretend to be happy, but then when you talk about money, they start stressing out. Now, some of them have a lot of money. Some are startups. They don't really have much. They put everything into the business, but many of them have a lot of money. You talk about millions and millions of dollars. But the guy that has five bucks to his name because he's put everything into his company usually has less stress than the guy that's running a $150 million company. Guy's running a $150 million company. He's looking for another $150 million. He's stressed out. He's not sure what's going to happen. He's thinking the economy is weak. The president is changing. War is about to start. Employees are suing. Competition is stealing. All types of things, all types of worries. The other guy just started a company, only has hope. I hope I survive. The guy that already has the money, he's worried. He's worried if this is going to work, if that's going to work, every mistake is going to cost the millions. He's got everything to lose. But both of them know one thing. If you're not growing, you're going to disappear. If the $150 million company doesn't grow, eventually it'll become obsolete. The same as the startup that just started, if, he doesn't, if his product doesn't launch on time and is not a hit in the market, he's going to go broke, he's going to go bankrupt. A real life story is something that you're probably all familiar with. There used to be, I guess most of you guys were around from when the internet, before the internet was really big. But about 15 years ago, a little over 15 years ago, search engines like you have today were not the same. Search engine was like, you know, usually you'd know where you're going to. You want to go to AOL, you would go AOL.com. You want to go to, I don't know, some, buy something for your pets, you go to pets.com. You want to go to Yahoo, you go to Yahoo.com. You wouldn't just search the internet for something aimlessly. So this little company, after the, please, this little company came to, after the dot-com bubble burst, all the dot-com companies crashed, this little technology company came to three companies, offering itself up for sale. It went to the three biggest technology companies in the world. Yahoo, Microsoft, and America Online Time Warner, Time Warner AOL. At the time they were still together. Microsoft's a multi-billion dollar company. Yahoo is a multi-billion dollar company. And AOL were multi-billion dollar company. This little rinky-dink company started by two Jewish guys. Canton and listen, we have this thing. We think that our technology is going to be very important. And we're looking to sell it. How much? Ten million bucks. Ten million dollars. Ten million dollars is like an accident for one of these big companies. It's like they lose it on the way to work. They lose $10 million. It's nothing. It's a rounding error. When Microsoft reports their earnings, they don't report, we made 
32 billion, 512 million. No, they report 32 billion, 32.5 billion. Because 10 million is like a rounding error. It's nothing. Same thing with AOL, same thing with uh, Yahoo at the time. Billions and billions of dollars, 10 million dollars, nothing. So this little company says, listen, we're going to sell ourselves for 10 million dollars. No buyers. No, no, we're not interested. We don't really think, we don't really believe in your technology. We don't believe in it. We're going to stay AOL as AOL is. We're going to stay Microsoft as Microsoft is. We're going to stay Yahoo as Yahoo is. Well, as Hashem has and runs the world, that little rinky-dink company became what you know as Google, who's bigger than all three of those companies today. AOL almost went bankrupt. Yahoo almost went bankrupt, and Microsoft stayed in business, stayed successful, but is no longer the biggest company and almost became obsolete. At some point, they will become obsolete if they don't change, because no one really needs Microsoft Office anymore. No one actually has liked Microsoft Windows for almost 15 years or 20 years, but we keep having to buy it because we're forced. And little by little, these companies are becoming obsolete, but Google is running the tech show. Meaning, Le'avdiu from the Torah, Le'avdiu from all the major things that we have to learn in real life, but we see here that even in the business world, if you're not growing, you're shrinking. If you don't advance, you're going backwards. There's no option to stay where you are. Just like you're not allowed to keep yourself in the same place in the business world, even after you hit success, you have to maintain the success. The CEO that's stressed out after having a $150 million company, he's rightly, he's right to be stressed out. Because he understands the problem. He understands that if he's not stressed out to build a company further, there won't be a company to build. It's that easy to lose. Much, much easier to lose than to build. Much easier. Same thing with Yenashama. If you go over the Gemara, any Masechet, pick one. Each one of them has major things that you need to learn. But once in a while you get an atomic bomb. It says if you do this, You do this sin, you have no share of the world to come. You do this sin, no share of the world to come. Every other way you turn around, you try, you're learning, you did, da, 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 boof, you get an atomic bomb on your head. Oh, I'm going to lose my word to come. Come on, no. Every masechet is like an atomic bomb on your head. To remind you, my friend, be careful. Hashem is not your friend. You have part of Him inside you. Part of your neshama is Hashem Yitbarach Himself. Start acting like it. Start acting like it. Protect this neshama. Don't act like you're like everybody else. Because you're not. And definitely don't get too much confidence... For where you stand, even if you know the entire Shas by heart. Even if you know the entire Shukhan by heart. Doesn't matter how much you know. What matters is how much Yad Shamayim you actually have. And if you understand, really understand, where you stand. The Chafetz Chaim one time invited one of his uh, Talmidim. He said, what do you think of this new light they put in the neighborhood? 
They put a new light in the neighborhood. What do you think of the new light? Tell me, there's not even... Chafetz Chaim cares about the light in the neighborhood. They met, this is what we came to. It's like, teach me. Teach me. Kvodot. Of course, there's Dwar Torah here. He says, when you get further from the light, your shadow looks bigger. Get closer to the light, the shadow gets smaller. This is just like Torah. The further you are from the light of Torah, the bigger deal you think you are. The more special you think you are. But the closer you get to the truth, the more of a nothing you realize you are because of how much you're lacking. That's Malachi Hashem. They learn from everything, even from a traffic light. Rabbi Baranes, which pretty much is a name that almost every Sephardic woman in Amisrael knows the name. He also had a Rav. And his name was Elisha ben Nevuya. But in the Gemara, they call him Achel. Achel. The Gemara calls him Achel. Why do they call Elisha ben Avuya Achel? Because despite being a Tana, able to revive the dead, being someone that was one of four people that went to a place that no one else ever went. Talks about four people went to Shemaim and saw things. One died, one went crazy, one went off the derech, which is Elisha ben Avuya, and one became even better, Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara explains that he saw one of the angels of Hashem sitting down. And he says, does it make sense? It says in the Torah that the angels don't sit, they stand. And it didn't make sense. This is very, very high level Kabbalah stuff and things that are much higher than the Shior can actually handle. But nonetheless, he saw th- something in Shemaim that didn't make sense to him. Decided that he's off, he's doing something else. Like one of these people that sends me an email, we have Baruch Hashem, this new uh, Torah and science video that we came up with. And uh, we cut the film into small clips. And one of the clips, like maybe a five minute clip, talking about divine knowledge in kosher. Meaning that you can see how the knowledge we have about kosher animals had to come from God. It's not something that a human being could have known. Anyone that wants to watch it should watch it. It's only a few minutes. Anyway, this is not information that I discovered. This is information that's already existed for many, many years. Aside from being in the Torah, there's scientists. Many, many scientists and veterinarians and so on that have conjured up all this information. There's tens of sources. But I have this one guy, 
few people send me comments about it. A lot of people like it. But oh Hashem, tens of thousands of people have already watched it. In just the last week, I think this one video has maybe 25,000 hits, which is, Bo Hashem, a lot for anything relating to Torah. So this one guy says to me, I need sources to show that this is real. I think you spreading false information is really putting, uh, is really uh, a uh, shame and is a uh, embarrassment to Yiddishkeit. It's an embarrassment to Yiddishkeit, meaning Judaism. You're putting false information. And then he finishes up the sentence with the best, the email with the best part. I would even start keeping kosher in my house if you provide me the sources. Now I provided them the sources, Baruch Hashem. It's maybe like 15 different sources of scientists and so on. But the best part of the email was that he's saying that, I'm, aside from the fact that he's calling me a liar, which is interesting to begin with, like why, would I, why do I care enough to lie? Why do I care if you eat kosher or not? I'm not selling kosher meat. I'm not a butcher. I don't have a monopoly on a, on a kosher meat market or anything. Why do I care if you keep it or not? But aside from that, like, aside from calling me a liar, like you're saying, I'm an embarrassment to Judaism, but you don't even keep kosher. You see the dilemma here? It's like a lung doctor is telling you, you know what? You should stop smoking. It's really bad for you. And he's smoking right in front of you. Cancer doctor is smoking in front of you. You gonna take him seriously? Guys, I'll keep I'll keep kosher. Just don't you know, don't be an embarrassment to Judaism. So it's easy for us to criticize everyone else. It's hard for us to look in the mirror. But anyway, all of us come up with excuses. Elisha ben Avuya came up with his own excuse. Something didn't make sense to him in Shemaim. He went off the derech. Now Rabbi Meir Balanes was at a level where even though it says in the Gemara, you're not allowed to learn from a rabbi that's a rasha. If his appearance is like Malach Hashem, learn from him. But if his appearance is not like Malach Hashem, meaning you don't see Yirat Shemaim in this rabbi, you don't see Yirat Shemaim in this teacher, you're not allowed to learn from him. If he's not agun, if he's not a fair person, meaning he's not going to tell you the truth, not allowed to learn from him. He could be the smartest guy in the world, not allowed to learn from him. But we see here in the Gemara, the Rabbi Meir continued learning from Elisha ben Avuya. It says, it's because Rabbi Meir was able to decipher. He was already at such a high level, he was able to decipher the junk from the kosher knowledge that he had, because he did know a lot of Torah. But why am I mentioning this? Aside from another story of seeing someone at the Tana, going off the derech, so showing us that we should never be confident about ourselves, there's a very interesting Gemara in Chagigah, page 15. Something that I don't think anyone really looked at this as far as Musar, 
at least not that I know of, at least not, you know, in a shiur. And I saw this and it was almost shocking. So it says, what happened to this uh, uh, Elisha ben Navuya? Let him go out and indulge his pleasures in this world. He strayed in the ways of bad society, meaning he went off the derech, he went the whole way. Not just like he, uh, huh? He didn't idol worship. It's one thing he didn't do. But he went off, started Bechalel Shabbat, started eating non kosher, everything. But he listened to this. He went out and found a uh, prostitute and asked her for services. She said to him, But aren't you the great sage Elisha ben Avuya? In response, which is Elisha ben Avuya, uprooted a radish from a radish patch on Shabbat which is a capital offense and gave the radish to her Amra and she said Acheru this must be someone else explanation Elisha ben Nevuya Acher goes to a prostitute he says I want you to be with me I'll pay you he says aren't you one of the Gdolei Ador, Elisha ben Nevuya. He doesn't answer her. He just violates Shabbat in front of her. Turns on the car. Turns on the car. She goes, oh, no, no. There's no way that you can be Elisha Nevuya. Meaning, the prostitute, the Zona, already knows, even if he's Gdolei Ador, it's possible for him to go with a prostitute. But it's definitely not possible for him to violate Shabbat. At Kedekach. Ken, but this is by himself versus with a difference. So then it moves on and says, Ve'al tadin et chavercha at shetagiyah lehem komo. Do not judge your fellow until you've reached his place. In the Gemara, Masechet Sanhedrin, page 102b, Rav Ashi teaches his class, his students, about Menashe. Menashe was one of, one of the kings of Israel that went off the derch, became a very big rasha. Very big Asha. Killed a bunch of tzaddikim, including his own grandfather. Raped the sister. Shem Achem did mamash, idol worship, everything you could possibly do. Eventually, did tshuva. Which from him we learn that it is never too late. You can, everyone can do tshuva. Like he is the prime example. Of it's always possible to do tshuva. Every sin you could possibly make, he made. But he did tshuva at the end. But Rabashi teaches his, uh, his students, says that Menashe knew an enormous amount of Torah. Enormous amount of Torah. 
And he calls Menashe in, in, the, uh, in the shiur our friend, our dear friend Menashe, like in a funny way. Like this guy went, you know, was a king, Rasha, eventually did Shuba, but the big story about him is that he was a Rasha. But there's some things to learn from this, that you could always do Shuba. Now that night, Rav Ashi had a dream. Menashe came to him in a dream. He said, how dare you call yourself my friend? You're not even on the same level as me of what I know in Torah. Do you even know which part of the bread you take out for motzi on Shabbat? You know, you do motzi. Everybody does motzi. Take the bread, you do the blessing, and you just take the bread. Many people I see cut it with a knife now. Some people old-fashioned like me where you just grab a piece, you break it. But Menashe says, you don't even know which part of the bread to take out. Now, until I read this Gemara, I never knew there was a part of the bread to take out. I just thought I'd just take any part, give him a tea. Manasseh said this actually specific part of the bread he's supposed to do is the first piece. So Ravashi says to him, if you know so much Torah, how'd you become an idol worshiper? If you know so much Torah, how do you go believe in nothing? A little statue you bought in uh, Chinatown instead of a Shemit Barach. Doesn't make any sense. If you know all this Torah, you know idol worship. And Menashe says, Don't judge your fellow until you reach this place. Meaning, the desire for idol worship in my generation was the desire. If you had lived in my generation, you would chase more idols than I did. You would chase more idols than I did. Because the desire we had for idols was uncontrollable. And the only reason you don't have desire for idol worship is because they prayed in the Beth HaMikdash to begging Hashem to remove this desire because we couldn't control it. Plus the idols... We're not normal idols. They were not the same thing that you have in Chinatown. You buy for $15. The idols actually had powers. Some of them talked. Some of them moved. Some of them actually were able to heal. Meaning that Hashem gave them this kishuf, this power, to do it. It wasn't just a desire in man. There was a reason for them to do it. Because some of them, you could easily believe it. So Menashe says, well, you're judging me. You don't understand what we were dealing with back then. Okay. Why did Hashem do it? Hashem makes it difficult in order to see how, hold you're strong, how, how hard you're holding the coin. Remember last week we said, if you're holding a coin, let's say it's the most valuable coin in the world, and you like this coin, it's your favorite coin. Now, if you're holding it in your hand, you and I don't really know how hard you're holding it until I try to take it from you. You and I don't know how much you love Hashem and how much you fear Him until you have a test. If you have a test, then we can see if you love Hashem. You can say, I love Hashem, I'm scared of Hashem, I love Hashem and I'm scared of Him at the same time. Okay, what about when you get sick? You still love Hashem? 
or you're upset? Are you mad at Hashem because you lost money? Are you upset at Hashem because you didn't find a zivug yet? You're already 25? Are you questioning Hashem because you didn't get the job you wanted? And this reminds me of a chidush I heard from other friend. Something out of this world if you understand it. Mamash out of this world. In the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, it says that the hate for Am Yisrael, page 16, says the hate for Am Yisrael came down after we had Mount Sinai. That's why it's called Mount Sinai, Al Sinai, Sinai. And after the Cheta Egel, the golden calf, we had to start bringing korbanot. To bring sacrifices. Part of the reason for the sacrifices is to make up for the Cheta Egel. Part of it. The Torah, it says, if someone made a sin, they have to bring one korban. If by accident, by accident, they violated Shabbat. They have to bring a korban. By accident. Shogig. If it's on purpose, they kill him. There's no korban. There's no tshuva. Someone lights the light in a beknesset because it's dark. Wants to do a mitzvah. But on purpose, he lights the light for a beknesset on Shabbat. They take him, they kill him. It's on purpose. But if it's by accident, he ran into it, Brings korban. Tzedel. Best korban is what? A bull. Bull is the highest level. But what if the guy doesn't have any money? He doesn't have any money. They say he brings two korbanot. He doesn't have any money. He brings two korbanot. Two birds. Two little doves. Yeah, you ask. If I ask, wait a minute, I don't understand. One Koban, the big bull, fine. The guy doesn't have any money. Give him one, one. Why does he have to have two Kobanot? No, it's his, it's his control to be poor. Hashem decides. It says, Gemara, Masechet Beitzah, Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 17. It says, I'm sorry, Beitzah, page 17. says that Hashem... Decides what Parnassah you're going to have from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah. If someone does say, we see that he brings a poverty to his actions, he'll be punished for being poor. Seven, but nonetheless, it's still, it's still in Hashem's hands who's going to be poor, who's going to be not. Not going to be poor. Yes, it's a result of your actions to some extent, but nonetheless, Hashem decides what Parnassah you're going to get. So, if the guy doesn't have any money, why don't you say instead of one bull or one sheep, one bird? He's doing one korban. I have to do two korbanot, two different types of korbanot. Why do I have to do two korbanot? Now Ephraim gives a chidush. One korban for the sin of the shogeg. You made a mistake. You made a sin. But the other korban 
for the second that you thought and questioned God as Hashem, how come you didn't give me more money? As if Hashem made a mistake by not giving you money. How many of us are in that same boat? How many times have we asked Hashem, Hashem, how come you didn't give me this, you didn't give me this, you didn't give me this, you didn't give me this? How many times are we complaining to Hashem? In the days of Beth HaMikdash, you'd have to bring Koban 24 hours a day. The amount of questions we have for Hashem is Barach. So Menashe tells him, you cannot judge me, my friend, because you didn't have my desire. So Ravashi says, okay, so can you at least tell me which part of the bread you're supposed to take out of the motzi? He says, yes, it says the one that's the most burnt. The one that's the most burnt, that's the piece you take out, you break off the bread for motzi. So he even learned something from his dream. Al Our dreams are full of shtiyot. Once you start one thing, there's no limits. Once you start one thing, once you start one sin, it opens up sins for everything else. Opens up sins for everything else. We'll get to that in a second. The next thing it says, "Ve'al tomar davar sheif shal lishmoa shesofoli shama." Do not make a statement that cannot be easily understood on the ground that it will be understood eventually. This is trying to teach us when you speak, whether it's to teach or it's to communicate, you must speak clearly and don't assume anything. Don't assume everyone else knows. Don't assume anyone else is going to understand and don't be one of these strange people that says, no, no, eventually they'll get my meaning, like you're Moshe Rabbeinu. Eventually they'll understand my secrets. Like some people, they're like, you know, programmers, they have a little bit of a, you know, God complex, unfortunately. Sometimes these programmers, they put special codes inside their programs or their websites or stuff that they create because in case someone knows, they'll see I did it. And there was one guy that worked at the company my wife used to work in. He designed a program for this uh, big firm, 500-man firm in Florida, actually. He designed their entire back office. And one day he wanted to hold the company hostage. Where the program stopped functioning, meaning they cannot buy or sell stock, they cannot move money. The whole operation is shut down. Hundreds and hundreds of brokers are waiting. Nothing can be done. You can't buy anything, you can't sell anything, you can't move money, can't do anything, which is a disaster. Unless they give them money. Obviously, they uh, didn't, they didn't give them any money. They got other programmers to hack into the program, and the other programmers said, yeah, the secret was that he put his name inside the code inside the code, instead of it being zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, he like encrypted somehow his name into everything. People have God complex. So, don't be one of those people that wants to make sure, I want to make sure people know I was here. So you write your name on the bathroom. 
You go in a public toilet, John was always there. He said, every toilet in America, John was there. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, as far as teaching and also in regards to business, this is something that I can tell you from experience, there's a few things that are very, very important. Number one, do not use acronyms. Tiferet Israel says that too many people in the old days, paper was very, very expensive. Not like today. You buy 500 pieces of paper for $2 or a dollar. In those days, they had to take the skin of the animal, put it through lime, through, through a whole system, until they made paper, which is the reason why Rashi's handwriting and all of Chazal's handwriting is very, very small. And they tried to shorten a lot of things and use a lot of acronyms. But a lot of abbreviations. But this is a very big mistake in today's world. Anyone that uses abbreviations in today's world is making a big mistake, both in Torah and in business. And the reason why is because by using abbreviations... You're assuming everyone knows what they're talking about. And in today's world, no one knows anything. Both in business and the Torah world. Bemet. Most people think that Noah is somebody that was in a movie a few years ago. And Moshe Rabbeinu came out with a movie 40 years ago. They actually think that the Ten Commandments movie is exactly what happened in Mount Sinai. Most people, when you tell them Gemara, they think it's a single book like this. That's it, that's the Gemara. They don't realize there's a bunch of them. They don't realize what's inside the book. One time on one of the parties of the Shas, that, you know, my cousin Rabbi Ephraim finished the Shas Baruch Hashem many, many times. No one knows exactly how many. One thing we do know is that he finished the Yerushalmi and the Bavli twice each before he was 20. Meaning he finished the Shas four times before he was 20. Most people don't finish it once when they're 90. He finished it four times before he was 20. After that, he stopped telling people. But one of the things that he does is a, it's a uh, important thing to do is that he would do a cel- big celebration every time he finished the shas. So one time, his, uh, his mom tells a story. One time, they invite people to the Siyum uh, shas and uh, family members. And, you know, not everybody is exactly a genius. Some people know Torah, some people don't know anything. So one of the guys doesn't know anything, family member, doesn't know anything about anything. Comes in, and he's like, oh, what's the party about? He's like, oh, he finished the shas. Oh, great, what's the shas? Like, oh, it's, see all those books on that wall? Yeah. Goes, oh, okay, he finished all of them. Like, oh, okay, great. He goes, she realizes he doesn't understand what it means. He goes, oh, open the book. He goes, no, I'm in a hurry, I'm in a hurry. Just open one of the books, read one page. She said when he opened the book, he opened one of the gemarot, he almost passed out. When he realized, he doesn't understand one word. Not just a page. One word he doesn't understand. Finishing the shots is something big deal. And understanding it too, not just reading like a robot, making sounds. A lot of people read, but they have no idea what they're saying. So, in today's world, most people do not know what Gemara is. Most people do not even know what Torah is. They think Torah is just a stories, Yaakov, Moshe, King David. It's nice stories like Sipuet Sadikim. People do not understand what Torah really is, what it can do. People think that Siyat Dishmaya is like not getting a flat tire on a highway. People do not understand. Unfortunately, we're in a generation where the vast majority of people do not understand. They just don't. I can tell you because I was one of them. 
And I was considered a Tamit Chacham in the secular world. I was a scholar in college and high school and all of those things, and I knew nothing about Torah. I can tell you from experience, people do not know. In the business world, it's even worse. Because people use acronyms on a regular basis, especially in the investment business or in banking business or financial world. Or it's actually infested itself in a lot of different places and people start getting to a point where they make presentations to sell something and they start using acronyms. Oh, we're using the CRM system in this division and we're also using the uh, C++ on that one and and using all these acronyms. Now, if you're talking to your colleagues, the guys that are working for for the same company, then yeah, of course, they should know what you're talking about. But if you're saying we're using a CRM system, a customer relationship manager system, management system, to a customer, he doesn't know what a CRM system is. He doesn't know what C++ is, that it's some type of programming system. He doesn't know anything. He knows, I need email. And I need the email to go to the customer. And then I need the customer to open it. And the customer says, bye, bye, bye. And then the money goes in my bank. That's what I want. Can you make that happen? Oh, and I also want to know, like if I want to know which customer bought, I need the system. Oh, yeah, CRM system. Oh, okay, so that's what we need. You don't know anything. And you're using the CRM system. And people are surprised when they go, they make these presentations with this PowerPoint presentation and nobody buys anything. Because no one knows what you're talking about. No one knows anything you're talking about. You're using all these acronyms, all these things. Nobody knows anything. It's just it's like a bunch of letters to them with the colors on them. So if you're going to be a salesman, whether you're selling Torah or you're selling business, speak clearly. Do not use acronyms because no one knows what you're talking about. And even if they do, it's much more pleasant to hear a full word than someone too lazy to say the full word. For my generation and beyond, we find people that use acronyms in in common speech lazy. Like, why can't you say the full three words? Why is it easy for you to say CRM and not customer relationship management? Or other acronyms that people use. Use the full word. Use acronyms in, you know, in certain documents or if, you're, if you have a legal document, instead of saying the customer's name or the company's name 500 times in a legal docu- document, you just call it respondent or claimant or customer. So you don't have to repeat five words every time. But that's in documents. And that's also disclosed and explained. If you want to be successful in life and everything, you have to be clear. That's the first thing that this this part of the Mishnah is telling us. Don't assume anyone knows anything. That's one. Two. Many people try to build their lives either politically business-wise, Torah-wise, and then one day they have an atomic bomb happen to their life. One of their enemies exposes something they did 10 years ago. The guy already forgot what he did. The guy forgot that he sent an email to his friend describing his relationship with this worker that's inappropriate. He forgot about it already. He passed. It's fast. He did tshuva and he moved on. But the guy that he sent it to, all of a sudden, 10 years ago, 10 years later, decided he wants to expose him. He's jealous because he became more successful than him. 
or whatever it is, and it comes out, and all of a sudden the new president-elect has five women telling you that he has a story with them. All of a sudden the new CEO has 18 kids he doesn't know about. All of a, all of a sudden all these things happen. So here the Mishnah is explaining, don't act as if what you're saying is not going to one day become public. If you're going to live in this world, especially in a technology world that you live in, assume, assume that everything you ever write or say will become public at some point. Especially if you're transferring it in a digital way. If you ever write an email, assume that email will be read by the person you don't want it to read. If you ever write a text, assume that whoever you're writing the text about will eventually read it. It will happen. If you're writing about the regulators, assume they're going to read the letter about the regulators. If you're writing about your ex-girlfriend, your ex-boyfriend, your ex-husband, anything, assume it eventually will come out. Can you handle it? If you cannot handle it, if you don't want anyone else to see it, don't write it. If you don't want anyone else to hear it, don't say it. This is part of the reason, if any one of you has ever uh, noticed, I don't edit my videos. As soon as we finish, I upload them and they're on. There's no editing. Why? Because if, I'm, if I don't want to say it, I'm not going to say it. If I'm already going to say it, it's available to the entire world. This, Baruch Hashem, was one of the few benefits, very few benefits, that I actually learned from running an investment company. Because we had to deal with compliance and government on a regular basis, and we knew that anything that we say will become public. I didn't always listen. I wrote articles against the government. That didn't actually help my career or anything, but it was helped my ego for a short period of time. Don't do it. But nonetheless, I had a policy in my company that you're not allowed to write, to, to send an email until I see it. Doesn't matter how many employees I have, doesn't matter how many emails you need, doesn't matter anything. Unless I see it, or the chief compliance officer of the company sees it, you're not allowed to send it. Why? Because I don't know. Maybe you're going to tell people that you're guaranteeing profits, and then I have to go pay a fine. Maybe you're telling people that uh, all types of stupid things. Maybe you're uh, looking at stupid things. Maybe you're doing all types... Who knows? I don't trust anyone. My name's on the door, not yours. You do something stupid, I get in trouble. Government doesn't look for the employee. They look for the big fish. This is the reason why, despite always doing kosher business, never cheating anyone, all the lawsuits and craziness that I ever got into was because of my employees, my lovely employees. With the exception of one case, which was my uh, neighbor that was just too greedy. But nonetheless, it's a very, very important lesson to know both personally, business-wise, in every shape or form. Don't write it unless you're okay with everyone seeing it. If you're writing about somebody, expect that person to eventually see it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually you will. Are you okay with it? If you're not okay, don't write it. So that's the second thing you learned from this part of the Mishnah. Third thing is, 
Any one of you that speaks a foreign language, you have to know that speaking a foreign language comes with a responsibility if you're a Jew. If you're a human being also, but if you're a Jew, even more so. Don't speak your foreign language in front of people that don't speak your foreign language. It's very annoying and very rude. Like if you're Russian, don't speak Russian next to Americans. If you're Israeli, stop speaking Hebrew next to a bunch of Americans. It's rude, it's annoying, and it's a sin. Why? Because everyone thinks you're talking about them. Or else, why can't you talk to them in normal language? Why can't you talk to them in, lang- in a common language? Why do you have to speak? Like especially when you're at dinner, it's like, hey, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. And the other one, one little American, you know, is like, they're talking about me. They're all talking about dinner. They're talking about the baseball. They're not talking about them. But he feels that way. What you do, you cause them sorrow. You cause them sorrow. You cause them to be sad. When? On Shabbat, nonetheless. Stop being so rude. Stop talking a different language in front of people. If you're going to talk about that person, don't have them come over then. Simple as it gets. The Rambam, in his Pirush, on Pirkei Avot, says that even in his time, almost 900 years ago, He'd notice that there are people that consider themselves from religious, this, that, and any time there would be celebrations, weddings, or bar mitzvahs, or anything like that, if anybody would sing a beautiful song that's connecting to Hashem, that's praying to Hashem, but in Arabic, they would frown upon him and shut him up. Don't sing to us in Arabic. We don't need to hear. Okay, but I'm saying Hashem. No, 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 we don't want that. And they would replace it with a song full of immodest things, but in Hebrew. So Rambam says, these are shine. Instead of being concerned about what the lyrics are, they worry about the language. They worry about the language. And people, instead of worrying about how they behave in front of their guests and to be concerned about Kvod Hashem, Kiddush Hashem, they worry about what's he going to say to everybody about how my house looks when he leaves. What's he going to say to everybody about my cooking? What's he going to say to everybody about the different things that I have? Instead of worrying about the right things, we're about to tefel, stupid things, nonsense. And this makes it very, very easy for us to use this lack of understanding of how strong our speech is inappropriately. We get to a point where we start feeling comfortable saying Lashonara. Oh, it's not a big deal. I'm not saying Lashonara to his face. I'm saying it you know, in a different language. You know, American comes to your house, 
a Russian comes to your house, an Israeli comes to your house, you speak in a different language. And you think, no, no, so I'm making fun of him, but he doesn't understand. So it's okay. It's okay, he doesn't understand. Oh, and somebody tells you, so um, you use that dry cleaner? Yeah. It's good? No, no, I didn't say anything. I didn't say Lashonara. I didn't say anything. Yeah, but you, everybody understood that you, your face was a little strange when he said, is it okay? So Rambam says, in a Gemara, Masechet Arachim, page 15a, which also comes from the Mishnah, 3 5, Arachim 3 5, says, Chazal teaches us that the only reason we stayed in the desert for 40 years, 40 years were in a desert, was for saying Lashonara about a bunch of trees and rocks. Trees and rocks. They went to Eretz Yisrael, the Meraglim. They went to Eretz Yisrael and said, Nah, listen, the ground swallows people. It's not really a blessed land. They said Lashonara about trees and rocks. What did they say Lashonara about? For that Hashem punished them to be in a desert for 40 years and the entire generation to die and not enter Eretz Yisrael. So Rambam says, what punishment are we going to get for saying Lashon Ara about his chosen people? What punishment are we going to get for causing Chilul Hashem, for speaking a different language instead of a, in, next, next to a foreigner and causing him to think that we don't like a certain sect of people, a certain kind of people? What kind of punishment are we going to get? We get too comfortable with Lashonara. Becomes common language. last part of the Mishnah says, And he finishes this Mishnah by saying, Don't ever say, I'll study when I become free, for perhaps you will not become free. Hillel finishes this Mishnah in a very Interesting but strange way if you don't understand it. First, he tells you be part of the kila. Then he tells you make sure you stay from, don't ever trust yourself. Don't think you're better than this kila. Don't trust yourself so much. Then he tells you don't judge anybody else either. And don't say anything you don't want everybody else to find out. Oh, and by the way, don't say I'm going to study when I have time. When you think about it, maybe the studying should have been the first. Or maybe in a different Mishnah. What does that have to do with it? 
What is making time for studying, or else you're not going to have any time, have to do with the rest of this Mishnah? Good question, no? Yilad is telling us a big secret. Kadosh Baruch Hu, Nigmar Maser Bachot says, Barati Yetzara, Barati Torah Tavlim. I created a Satan, I created a Malach HaMavit, I created a Yetzara, all three are the same thing. Moshe Rabbeinu called him Ra. He called the Satan Ra, evil. Seven other names for him. Hashem says he's bigger than you. He's stronger than you. He's more experienced than you. He's smarter than you. Everything better than you. You can't beat him. Can't. He's huge. From the ground to the Shemaim. Matter of fact, the holy books say, just like Hashem created everything with an equal, everything with a similar, or the opposite, opposite, not equal. So just like I gave you Moshe Rabbeinu, I gave you Bilam. Moshe Rabbeinu is the prophet of the Jews, Bilam, prophet of the Goim. Darkness, light, even though I'm sure some scientists fans and say, no, darkness is the absence of light. It's not really the opposite. You know, there's always a smart guy that says something like that. They want to make sure they hear themselves talk. But you get the point. But the holy books tell us that just like Hashem has the Kiseh Kavod, the holy throne in the Gemara Masechet Chagigah, I believe it's page 12, it says that Nebuchadnezzar Rasha wanted to, his head got so big because he was controlling the whole world, he thought he'd go fight, fight God. So, a bad call from Shemaim came, Rasha Kamocha, Rasha ben Rasha, Rasha, son of a Rasha. You think he'd come fight me? Take you 500 years just to get to the bottom of the chair. Another 500 years to get to the next part of the chair. Here we learn from this, and it continues going. Thousands of years just to get to the chair. Here we learn that Chazal already knew about what light years is. So Hashem has Kiseh Kavod. This is something that we can't even imagine. Not the size, not the look, not nothing. But he said, just like I have Kisei Kavod, Satan also has one. I made him one too. And Satan has all these different employees that convince you to sin. Every time you make a sin, you create another employee for him. Another demon. Turn on the car in Shabbat, another few demons. Play with your phone, Another few demons, and they're all next to you. Your buddies. You get to Shemaim one day after 120, they ask you, what'd you do? And before you have time to even answer, all these little Shedim are going to come. Oh, no, no, you don't have to answer. I'm the sin that he created on that Shabbat when he played with the phone. 
I'm just saying that he created when he played with the app on the phone. I'm just saying that he created when he ate the candy without doing bacha. I'm just saying that he created when he didn't do bacha chona. And you have all these millions and millions of shedim, and that's just for a few hours. And what about when you waste seed? It's another few hundred million of them. So you have an army of soldiers that work for the satan, you're creating them. But also when you make mitzvot, create angels, they're going to help you. So Hashem says, listen, I gave him kivyachol, power. You can't really beat him. You can't. But I did give you a way to beat him. You can't beat him. But I gave you a system. I gave you a code. I gave you a cheat. You know, you guys used to play video games as little kids. Nobody actually wanted to play the game. We just were cheat codes. I just want to beat the game already in five minutes. And go spend another 50 bucks of Abba and Nima's money so we get a new game. Nobody wants to go through all the levels. Everybody wants a cheat code. Shem says, I created a cheat code for you. It's called Torah. The Torah is a tavlin. Torah is the potion. It's the only chance you have against the Satan. Not because the Torah by itself is going to do it. If you have a bunch of Sifret Torah but you don't read them, it's nothing. It's like someone has a disease but the medicine's on the cabinet. But he's looking at it. I have the medicine. Yeah, but you're not taking it. Yeah, but I have it. Chamol, you have to take it. It's not going to help you if it's on the shelf. She says the Tavlin is the Torah. Why the Torah? Because once you learn it, you connect to me. Once you connect to me, then you connect to my mercy. Once you connect to my mercy, I'll fight them for you. Because you can't beat them. And for that he wrote in a Sefer Shmot, Parashat Shmot, Exodus 14.14, uh, not Parashat Shmot, uh, Exodus 14.14, Shmot, Hashem elachem lachem v'atem techareshun. God will fight your wars and you shall remain silent. If you're doing Ritzon Hashem, you don't have to worry about anything. As long as you have worries, that means something is missing. Something is missing. Something is missing in your Limud. Something is missing in your Maasim. Something is missing. If you're still having struggles in your life, something is missing, which we learned about last week. So he learned decided to put this at the end of the Mishnah because he said first and foremost don't leave the Keilah you need them for a Minyan even if there's a fast declared for Am Yisrael for the Tzibur Tzibur is Rashi Tevot for Tzadikim Reshaim Benonim Tzibur Tzadik, Bet, Vav, Resh. Tzadik is Tzadikim, righteous people. Bet is Benonim, average people. Vereshaim is with the last two letters. Wicked people. In the Gemara, Maseret Keritot, page 6b, it says, if there is a fast declared for the people, for the Keilah, for the nation, if the Reshaim 
are not also fasting, it's not considered a real fast. Meaning you need the Rashaim. Why? You need them to do tshuva. The merit of their tshuva will help you. The merit of their tshuva will help you. You need to do kiruv. You need to get people to come back to Hashem. So now, first and foremost, remember, don't leave the keilah. Even if there's a few Rashaim, you need them. Why? Because you at least have an option. At least you have an opportunity to get somebody to do tshuva. Don't live in a cave thinking, no, no, I'm just going to keep for myself. I'm going to be Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai eventually left. Eventually got out. And he became Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Inside the cave, he wasn't Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Inside, he was a malach. He was an angel. But we know his Torah because he came out. We know his ma'asim, we know his actions because he came out of the cave. Time to come out. Time to use this Torah, you know, this midot that you're learning... To help the community, if they allow you. Second, even if you're helping people do tshuva, you're giving them CDs, you're bringing them to lectures, you're helping them pray, you're getting them tefillin, you get a guy to keep Shabbat, according to the Zohar, your life is already worth it. Get a guy to keep Shabbat. My rabbi told him one time, like, listen, it's not Hashem. If we have a, a boy one day, I'd like for you to come and be a sandak. I'd like for you to be a sandak. It's a big schut to be a sandak. And you want the sandak of the Brit Milah to be a tzaddik. Why? Because they say, Chazal says that the midot of the sandak affect the baby. This is also a mistake where sometimes people have... Rashaim as a sandak because they want to give him kavod. The guys in Mechalel Shabbat eats taref right before the party and right after the party, but they have him as a sandak because you want to give him kavod. No, no, but he's my father-in-law, he's my mother-in-law, he's my this, he's my that. You're ruining your kid's life. Tell him, thank you very much. We'll have the rabbi as a sandak. We'll have somebody that keeps Shabbat at least to be a sandak. I know this is, creates issues, creates problems, but it's better to have short-term problem than long-term problem. So anyway, so I told him, listen, I want, you know, Bezat Hashem, we have a boy, I'd like for you to come and be a sandak. And he says to me something amazing. He says, even if you told me to come be a sandak, and I said yes, and I leave Israel for the first time ever, assuming I'm going to do Shio Torah, because you're not allowed to leave Israel for no reason. I leave Israel for the first time ever to come to the party. And I'm supposed to be Sandak in five minutes. And one of your students comes to me or somebody comes to me and says, listen, if you let me be a Sandak, I'll keep Shabbat. I would have no hesitation for even a second to let him be a Sandak. Just let him keep one Shabbat. One Shabbat. Flew all the way from Israel, thousands of miles. For nothing. No, it's for everything. God wants a guy to keep Shabbat. So he says, if you get somebody to keep something, Chazaku Baruch, but don't take it to your head. Don't get so sure of yourself. Because even Yochanan, a Kohen Gadol, fell off the derech. 
Elisha ben Avuya fell off the derech. Bar Kochba fell off the derech. Shabtai Tzvi fell off the derech. All of them were big chachamim. As a matter of fact, Esav, Esav came to this generation, they think he's Doladol. People think Esav was some animal, some beastly looking person. Esav looked like a chassid, had the pays and everything. Looked like he was a mekubal. But Hashem says to the prophet, at Esav saneti. At Esav, I hated him. He doesn't say I hated Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. He doesn't say I hated Paol who killed millions and millions of Jews. He doesn't say he hated all these other people, but Esau, he hates. But he was worse. Yes, he was worse. Why? He knew and he still didn't do it. He knew the truth, but he pretended like he's doing it, but he's really not. So he'd go to his father and say, listen, Abba, what's the, what, how much salt did we get so I could give ma'asel? He doesn't have to give ma'asel on the salt. He'd worry about the language of the song, like the Rambam says, instead of the lyrics of the song. You know the truth, but you don't do it. Hashem hates you. You do what Hashem wants, He calls you Avai, my lovers. So Hillel is telling us here after you realize that you can't leave the congregation because you need them including the Rashaim that you can help them do tshuva. After you help them do tshuva, don't take it to your head because there's still millions and millions of other people you have to help. The third thing is all these people you're going to help don't look down on them. Just because you did tshuva five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago just because you were from, from birth and your father's a rabbi. And just because you know this rabbi and that rabbi and he doesn't know anything. If you had his life, you may be worse. If you had his life, you may be much, much worse. Don't look down on anybody. Help them. Don't insult them. One of your friends says, what's Kriyachma? What's Amida? What's the prayer on a apple? Don't laugh. It's not funny. It's sad. Help him. Make him feel like it's okay. Make him realize that he's not the only one who doesn't know. Go over with him, assuming he doesn't know. And if he knows, fine. But assume he doesn't know. If you have a guy that's brand new to religion, Go over the Siddur with him. Tell him, oh, by the way, we're going to pray this, this page, all the way from this page to that page. Then you're going to see everybody putting their hand on their face. That's this page. That's Kiyachma. Assume he doesn't know anything because most likely he doesn't. And he's too shy to ask you. He's too shy to ask you. He doesn't know why everybody keeps standing and sitting and standing and sitting and standing and sitting. He just thinks all of you guys have, you know, hemorrhoids or something. Why they're standing and sitting, standing and sitting? Just stand or sit, pick one. And why are they quiet now? What's he saying? Assume he doesn't know. We're in a generation of people who do not know. We do not know anything. Don't judge him. 
help him. Next thing is, after you help him, don't say things about him that you don't want him to find out. If he told you things in private, hey, listen, I don't know, I realize that wasting seed is a big problem. This is a big problem. Chilul Shabbat is a big problem. Cheating on your wife is a big problem. Abortion is a big problem. I didn't know all this stuff. And he starts telling you, I did this, I did this, I did this. Don't tell everybody, hey guys, look, this is my friend Daniel. He, uh, he killed three babies when he was 16 through abortions. And uh, this is his wife. Who uh, Don't tell them, report this to the world. It's not their business. He told you in privacy. And don't even tell it to anybody. Because eventually they'll find out. Don't say, hey, listen, yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, remember, that's the guy I told you? Yeah, he's the murderer. Because then they're going to look at him with like weird eyes and he's going to feel uncomfortable. Start being considerate. Considerate of this keilah that you're a part of. And then he will remind you, don't say that you're going to make time for the Torah, you're going to make time to study because perhaps you're not going to have Hillel is telling you the one final thing. He says, the only chance you have in following all of the instructions we just mentioned is if you never ever make the sin of saying, I'll study later, not today. The only chance you have in following what the Torah says, the only chance you have in following the instructions Hillel just gave you, the only chance you have in applying them is if you're always learning Torah and you never make an excuse. And you fulfill what Shlomo HaMelech said in Proverbs 2.4 If you seek it like money or treasure, then you'll understand what Yirat Shemaim is. Then you'll understand what Yirat Hashem is. And then you'll receive the knowledge of God. But only if you chase Torah, like you chase money. Be'ezat Hashem, we all start chasing Torah like we chase money. We all start chasing Torah like we chase all of our desires. Because if we do that, at least we'll have a chance of getting something that we can keep. Yeah. He said about Ben Hashem, yeah. that he made Shuvah, but yeah. Rabbi Akiva said that if Shuvah didn't help him, he still has no share of the world to come. Uh, Again, he showed the Nebuah, there's a Gemara there. Elisha Ben Nebuah, there's a Gemara who says he has no share of the world to come. That's in Masechet Sanhedrin, but Menashe has share of the world to come. But then Elisha just smoked one out of his grave for the country in 30 years, and they stand and put him in the Ganeid in the heart. Elisha ben Nevuya. Yeah, that's different. If you, have, you just mentioned three different people. Yeah. There's, a, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin that says, who doesn't have a share of the world to come? Bilam doesn't have a share of the world to come. Uh, Yerovam doesn't have a share of the world to come. Uh, but uh, Elisha ben Nevuya has a share of the world to come. It says that uh, Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, prayed uh, for him and also Rabbi Meir prayed for him. 
Rabbi Meir prayed for him to go to Gehenom. Because at least it ends at some point. It'll end at some point. So that's why they saw the smoke coming out of the grave. And Rabbi Yochanan prayed for it to stop, meaning to get him out of Gehenom. And it got him out of Gehenom. But he suffered for many, many years. Uh, but he has share of the world to come. Menashe also did tshuva. It says it in the, in the books, in the scripture. It says that the, uh, he did tshuva, but the reason it's not mentioned directly in his story, but only in Divrei Amim, in Chronicles, later on, is because the sins that he made as far as idol worship lasted beyond his life. So until all of the idol worship that he had in the world and all the effects from them disappeared, the tshuva wasn't accepted. The tshuva wasn't complete. So, for example, if somebody says, you know, a Lashon uh, about somebody, and uh, because of that, the person goes broke. Even if you go to the guy and say, listen, I'm sorry for saying it. He's like, okay, sorry, sorry, but I'm broke now. I went bankrupt. I have a $100 million company that went to zero, all because you lied. Sorry, sorry. To, you know, it means nothing to me. Give me my $100 million. So the effect of your words... You know, it could be much, much longer than just a day. So the effect of Menashe's actions lasted much more than his own life. So until the effect was gone from the world, the idol worship was gone from the world, his, his tshuva wasn't completed. And also we talk about praying and learning. So I see some people, they read with their eyes, and they pray with, like, they read it, is that kosher? Most people. Most people read with their eyes. Most people, most people, most people pray with their eyes. Most people learn with their eyes. It's okay, there's no... Uh, it's not a sin or anything, Chas Shalom, uh, but it's adif. It's adif uh, f- of, to uh, to say the words, to move your lips, because then you're t- then you're using multiple senses, you're using touch, because you're moving your lips, using a uh, speaking, and you're also using hearing, you're using multiple senses to uh, to study. But it's not so easy, you know. Listen, if you study a half a day and you're not used to it, to start speaking is not really that big of a change. But if you're studying five, ten, fifteen hours a day. To speak for 5, 10, 15 hours a day, unless Hashem gave you some special uh, gift that uh, you like to talk for five hours without stopping, then it's, it becomes a little more difficult. You know. You said, um, about and even if you do, it's still, it's um, something you have to train yourself to do. About Yohanan. Ken. Ken. How one sin learned many sins. Ken. You didn't mention it after. Yeah, one sin, one, in everything, in everything in general, it's the, the Torah explains... That one sin is always going to lead to other sins. I mean, it's a, uh, that's how it starts. You create one, uh, in a simple explainer, every time you make a sin, you create a demon. Now, that demon is going to have more power because now you have one demon, no angels. Let's just assume, hypothetically speaking, you have one demon, no angels. So now that demon is going to have power. So what is he going to do? He's going to cause you to sin again. So now you have two demons. Now, two demons, and let's say by accident you made a mitzvah, and I have two against one. So it's more like you're going to sin again. So you have three, four, five. So in, in essence, mitzvah goreret mitzvah, ve'avera goreret avera. A One mitzvah leads to another mitzvah, and one sin leads to another sin. That's just one of the rules in the Torah. Uh, so you could start with the simplest sin in the world, like a, uh, the, the Gemara even says that uh, jealousy, jealousy... Let somebody to uh, murder, and Chilul Shabbat, and I think also Gezel. Just being jealous. Somebody was looking at the other guy's uh, house over the fence. Eventually, he broke in. Eventually, because the guy wasn't home and the wife saw it, he ended up raping her. 
And then because he didn't want, obviously, her to testify against him, he ended up killing her too. For what? Being jealous that the guy had a nicer table in his house. So it's a, each sin leads to another one. So we have to be very, very careful. And that's why it specifically says, don't trust yourself. Don't be one of these people that, uh, no, no, I can handle this one. This one I can handle. This one's, it's okay. I, I, could, I could go to the club and not uh, do this. I could have a couple of drinks and not do this. I could just watch TV without changing the channels. I could do this. I could do You trust yourself. It says don't trust yourself until you die. Trust yourself in anything. And that's, it's, it's very, very important. And again, that's the only way you could ever get to that point is if your connection to Hashem is based on Yirah. If your connection to Hashem is, connect, is, is based on Yirat Shemaim, on fear of the Almighty, you're afraid to sin. If you're afraid to sin, you won't sin. If you're not afraid to sin, you'll sin. You're out of this world. The Tana Devei Liyahu says, Liyahu Navi. Hashem came to him and he says, You're too zealous. You love me too much. I have to take you out of the world. So Eliyahu Navi was one of ten people that never died. Hashem turned him into a malach. Turned to malach. No, he actually turned him. He didn't go into Ganeda. He went, became an angel. He says, You're too zealous. I can't leave you in this world. Why? Because if you stay in this world from your Kedushah, you'll destroy the entire world. Your Kedushah is so high, you'll destroy everything. Can't leave you here anymore. So, hmm? Ken. Chazal says, Pinchas and Eliyahu Navi the same. Some say he was a Gilgul, some say he was eventually became Eliyahu Navi, same generation, but they are definitely connected. No? Yes, you share? I'll give you one one good story and then we'll finish. Rav Galinsky, Zecher Tzadik Livracha, was a Malach Hashem, did a lot of Zikwer Rabim, Kiruv, gave lectures, was in the, uh, brought up in the Novadiko Yeshiva, Novadok. The foundation of Novadok was Musar, learning Musar. People that came out of there were Mamash angels. They went to Siberia, the jail in Siberia, which people don't leave, and they still fulfilled more mitzvot than us. In Siberian jail, the people don't leave, they die there, they still fulfilled more mitzvot than us. Everyone was concerned about surviving, they're concerning about their midot in jail, in Siberia. They're working on their midot, how to improve themselves in a Siberian jail. We're worrying about what kind of burger we're going to get. If it's a quarter pounder or a half a pounder. They don't eat for days because they're like, oh, maybe I don't have, a, have too much desire for food. So Rav Galinsky, he wasn't always Rav Galinsky. He says, in the beginning of his bio, his daughter wrote, says, I used to be a little troublemaker. I used to be a little troublemaker when I was a kid. Continued being a troublemaker his whole life, but for Kedusha. He says, but one day they sent me, the uh, Rob sent me, he says, go to this yeshiva in Novardok 
they're going to teach you something. Maybe they're going to put you back into shape. So he says, I went. Back then, there's no uh, GPS. There's no welcoming party. You just go. Go there. Find a Bekneset. Find a Rav. Good luck. Don't come back without it. This little kid goes. First Bekneset. He comes in. It's empty. Waits there, waits there, waits there. And all of a sudden he hears this young guy, like a teenager, late teens, saying, grab it, grab it. This life is almost over. How long are you going to be here? 60 years, 70 years, 100 years. Don't waste your time. Grab it, grab it, grab it. Grab whatever you can. All the mitzvot that you can. Don't waste any time. And over and over and over again. And he's crying when he's saying this. Grab all the mitzvot. Don't waste your time. Don't do it. Make sure you fulfill every mitzvah. Don't be sure of yourself. And little Galinsky is hearing this and he does tshuva on the spot. He says, this young man, he doesn't know that I'm there. He's talking to God. He's talking to himself. He's trying to do tshuva, but he's a tzaddik. He doesn't know I'm there. And he's crying his heart out to Hashem, trying to explain to Hashem that he understands that this life is temporary. Avalim is what are you gonna do here? Just grab the mitzvah because it's the only thing that's worth it. And Rav Galinsky says, that helped me do tshuva, meaning to go and become who he ended up being, Bezat Hashem. Now the bigger question is who's the guy? Huh? And Rav Galinsky says, the young man, the young tzaddik grew up to be the stapler gaon. Stapler is one of the last people, Rav Israel Yaakov Kanievsky, um, one of the last people that had Ruach HaKodesh. So one of the uh, people came to his Rav when he was still young. They came to the Novarok Yeshiva and they asked Rav Chaim Shmuelovitz uh, visited Rav Avram Jofen, who was the Rosh Yeshiva of the Novarok Yeshiva, and he asked Rav Avram, who is the best Lamdan? Who is the best student here? You know, one that studies with Mamash like he's focused. He's like, this guy. He's like, who is the one that's the best in Musal? The one that really learns Musa, works Midot, everything. That one. Different person. He's like, yeah, but who's the one that has the most amount of knowledge? Shuchan Aruch, Gemara, this, that. He goes, oh, this one. Third person. Okay, so what's the big question? Who's the best one? Who's the best student in all yeshiva? And to his surprise, it's none of the three. He says, no, no, it's that one. How can it be? This one knows most Musar. The other one knows all the Gemara, the Shas, this, ta, 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 knows all these things. And the other one studies, when he studies, you can talk to him until next week, he doesn't hear you. He's in his, in his Torah. What makes this one so special? He says, this one is the biggest mevakesh. He's the biggest seeker of Torah. 
He works harder than everybody else. Because to him, nothing's enough. Every mitzvah is the greatest mitzvah. Every word in the Torah is the greatest word. Every letter is the greatest letter. Everything is the most important. And that very same person is also the Stipe Lagaon. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.